these are books about America, its history, its geography, and its heroes. But it takes a big book like this one to tell the story of American folklore, the tall tales about men doing big things in a big country, men like Cap'n Stormalong, Joe McGarrick, John Henry, Pecos Bill, and the fellow who towers above them all, Paul Bunyan. North America was a great big land with a great big job to be done. A job that needed a great big man, Paul Bunyan was the one. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old... Family. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome all of you back. I have missed you all so much, my little buttercups. You are all, each and every one of you, so special. And it's just been very hard without you. And so I want to say that I hope you were feeling 63 axe handles high with your feet on the ground and your head in the sky today. Or maybe we can help out with that. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can get you on board with that uh, that reference here in a second. But really, how have you been? Okay. Not you. Oh, Everyone you like looking at me. Else. Well, you were just imagining that. I'm talking to our friends. Well, we do want to welcome all of you back. We are back. We're back. We're back. We're back. We've got tons of awesome episodes planned for you. Um, we do want to encourage all of you, now that we're back, and if you enjoy this show and our upcoming shows, to go into iTunes, leave ratings and reviews. You can also check out our website at justastorypod.com. And there we keep all the sources, all the many, many sources for all of our episodes and episode artwork and links to things like the merch store, the merchy, merchy, merch store, and the things there never go out of style because they're creepy. We're never in style. Uh, yeah, okay. they're yeah, creepy okay. and wonderful. There you can find t-shirts, coffee mugs, shower caps. You can also check out our Patreon page. We'll have some new episodes coming up within the next month. We've got some fun stuff planned, including one that links in with this episode. It's about a bison. A buffalo? A bison. Oh, you're right. And if you're looking for one more fun and fabulous way to get in touch with us, you can dial the Urban Legend Hotline, and that number is 512-222-3375. It's been a while. It took me a second. Well, dear listeners, we are going to start with a big story today. It's a whopper. Uh tall tale you might might say say. you could say that you could and you'd be right and i've had a cold and i'm sorry so we'll just circle back and i'll I'll do your your daily affirmation for you again but this time in context it's a it's a song and it's uh, north america was a great big land with a great big job to be done a job that needed a great big man and paul bunyan was the one Hey, Paul. Hey, Paul. Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan. He's 63 axe handles high with his feet on the ground and his head in the sky, yeah? Yeah. 
Hey, Paul. How about that? How about it? Hey, Paul. Hey, Paul. So today we're going to start off with the story of Paul Bunyan. So what are your earliest memories of Paul Bunyan? Well, the Disney version, of course. Of course. Of course. And not, I loved Tall Tale, like, you know, the live action movie from when we were kids. I'm sure you remember this. That was terrible. I loved it. I loved it too. I loved it. But the actual animated version of Paul Bunyan is the one I remember. You know, play like late at night on Disney Channel. Well, I had some VHS tapes that were like Disney's greatest animated shorts and things like that, that I I thoroughly enjoyed as a child. And it was on one of those. So lots of airtime that that one got. But what do you remember about him? Not where did you see him? Well, of course, he's Paul Bunyan. He's a giant. He's a logger. He is super strong. He has an ox. Lumberjack. Definitely like stereotypical brawny man looking. And by giant, we don't mean like taller than the average bear. We mean like taller than the average pine tree, right? Right, right. And of course, he had the ox. Babe, the blue ox. Blue, which in one story, there is a yellow female cow did they have a green baby i don't think so i don't remember that part but the yellow cow loved the sun of paul bunyan no the sun oh the sun in the sky yes that one and babe loves the cold oh so could they never be together so that would drove them apart it's like a bovine romeo and juliet it's a deep track But of course these stories have been around for over a century spreading from logging town to logging town from maine to the pacific northwest now today he's extremely well known he's mentioned in more than a thousand books more than 300 entirely devoted to his exploits 200 audio recordings videos musical scores half a million web pages so it's without a doubt he's one of the most widespread cultural icons in america very much touchstone yeah and you could see his statues you can travel to bangor maine where you can see a 31-foot-tall statue weighing approximately 3,700 pounds. Is it made of flapjacks? No. (laughs) Reputed to be one of the largest. You could always go to Bemidji, which claims the first and original giant Paul Bunyan statue, (laughs) along with a babe, don't forget. Oh, they they have a blue ox? Of course. Awesome. And you could go to Branyard, and you can go to Paul Bunyan Land. I want to. Me too. But they have a log ride. I I bet. (laughs) If not, get in touch with me. I'm a marketing genius. Apparently. Who would have thought of that? It's the world's largest talking animated bunion. Shut up. It's been there since 1950. But this one doesn't just say little catchphrases. It'll call out the children's name. That's kind of creepy, Jacob. They didn't have that kind of tech in 1951. They won't reveal the magic. You think it's a dude in a suit? (laughs) What else would it be? Two guys in a suit. It's 26 feet tall. Okay. So... I think it's like a Wizard of Oz type of situation. Ignore the man behind the curtain. Ignore the lumberjack behind the curtain. Hey, Paul. No, no, not now. So what are some of your favorite stories about Paul Bunyan? I love the thawing out of Babe. I love that he finds him in a snowstorm and he thaws him out. Well, now, one winter, it was so cold that all the geese flew backwards. And all the fish moved south. Even the snow turned blue. Late at night, it got so frigid that all spoken words froze solid before they could be heard. People have to wait until sunup to find out what folks were talking about the night before. (laughs) Paul Bunyan went out walking in the woods one day during the winter of the blue snow. He was knee-deep in blue snow when he heard a funny sound between a bleat and a snort. 
Looking down, he saw a teeny tiny baby blue ox just hopping about in the snow and snorting with rage on account of he was too short to see over the drifts. So Paul Bunyan laughed when he saw the spunky little critter and took the little blue mite home with him. He warmed the little ox up by the fire and the little fellow fluffed up and dried out. But he remained as blue as the snow that had stained him in the first place. So Paul named him Babe the Blue Ox. Creative. It's a great help around camp. He could pull anything that had two ends, so often he was used to straighten out the twisting, logging roads. And by the time Babe had pulled the twists and kinks out of all the roads leading to the lumber camp, there was 20 miles of extra road left flopping about with nowhere to go. So Paul just rolled them up and used them to lay a new road into the new timberland. So I'm assuming he went from being little and tiny to being like giant and massive. Like Paul Bunyan size. Of course. Okay. Of course. He would eat like 10 bales of hay in a sitting. I think that's impressive, but I'm not sure. It's like the flapjacks. Okay. And now legend says Paul Bunyan was born in Bangor, Maine, and it took five giant storks to deliver him to his parents. (laughs) Oh, storks. I would rather five giant storks than, you know, natural childbirth with a thing like that. Yeah, there was no medication back then. (laughs) Were his parents normal size? Of course. Okay. My favorite was always, like, I always think of the pancakes the flapjacks, mm-hmm. and the griddle skaters. Yes. That- One winter, Paul Bunyan came to log along Little Gimlet in Oregon. Ask any old timer who was logging that winter, and they'll tell you, I ain't lying when I say his kitchen covered about 10 miles of territory. That stove, now she was a grand one, an acre long, taller than a scrub pine. When she was warm, she melted the snow for about 20 miles around. It was quite a sight to see that cook of Paul Bunyan's making flapjacks Cookie would send four of the boys up with a side of hog tied to each of their snowshoes, and they'd skate around up there keeping the griddle greased while Cookie and seven other men flipped flapjacks for Paul Bunyan. It took them about an hour to make enough flapjacks to fill him up, and the rest of us had to wait our turn. Huh. I always heard it was butter they skated on, not hog side. I think that's the uh, cleaned up version. Yeah, this one's better. I like it better. Oh, and one of the, the finer points in the Disney cartoon is when he and Babe get lost and walk around for a bit, and then their footprints turn into like the land of the 10,000 lakes. I always thought that one was particularly nice. I love a good you know origin story. It would, that one appealed to me when I was little. And then there's also you know the story that they're wrestling. They're, they're, wrestling. they're raucous horseplay. Ho, ho. Oxplay, you know, roundabout Grand Teton way is what actually formed the mountain range. So, you know, you have those classic explanation type myths. Yeah, it's hearkening back to as, as old as myths themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, not only this giant strong man, but he's also creating natural phenomena as well. Now, he had a lot of relatives. He had a posse. A whole posse. All kinds. Here's a few choice choice selections. Tony Beaver. Uh-huh. Was he a beaver? No. Oh, well, a babe was an ox. That's true, but he wasn't a babe. Okay, fine. So he lived in West Virginia. Around... Was he a coal miner? No. Oh. No, mm. no. He was a logger, too, and a farmer. And one year, he had grown a whole mess of peanuts. How much is a mess? You know exactly how much a mess is. Okay. Country. So they were so big that he couldn't sell them, so he stored them. Now, later that year, a great rain came and the Eel River began to flood. Now, the people came to Tony Beaver and they asked for help. So he said all those people to shell in the peanuts and throwing them into the water. Mm-hmm. 
And as they were doing that, he grabbed a few hundred barrels of molasses, threw that into the river. The mixture began to thicken and froth and created a dam. Cool. Well, it helped with the flood, but after the flood was over... People wanted the river back. kind of needed the water. So again, they came to Tony Beaver for help. So he came along and he took his axe and he broke a piece off and he ate it. He broke more pieces off and he gave it to the villagers. So he broke this candy dam down, saved the town, and invented peanut brittle. So I'm now realizing, when you started telling the story about the peanuts that were too big in the river, I thought he was going to make them little peanut shell boats because the, the, the peanuts were too big. Well, that's a, that's a great idea. But then I realized his name is Tony Beaver, and it's only natural that he built a dam. Built a dam. I didn't realize yeah. that. I did not put that together. But it makes sense. And in the process, invented a delicious snack. Fantastic. Can't stop winning. Hashtag so much winning. Hashtag peanut brittle. Hashtag Tony Beaver was that? At Tony Beaver says. <laughs> no. Now, Paul Bunyan did have a little brother, Padre La Danse. Paul Bunyan's little brother was French. Paul Bunyan was French. Oh. <laughs> Originally. Oh. French Canadian. But then he got all anglicized up in Disney. <laughs> up in Minnesota. <laughs> okay. Minnesota. Um, so he was 4'9 and 100 pounds. So he's a little guy. He was so small because he could never get enough flapjacks on account of his brother. This all makes sense. They all had to wait their turn. And he was last in line. Oh, poor Cordwood Pete. But, you know, he did brag that he was the mightiest man in Minnesota of his size. <laughs> so the story goes that one night he snuck into the lumber camp and borrowed Paul's axe. Now, Pete gave the axe a swing and he began cutting. But the axe kept moving, spinning Pete like a top. No! And before morning, 100 acres of timber had been cleared. Now, Paul might have had his trusty ox, but Cordwood Pete had his trusty donkey, Tamarack. That's a fantastic name. That's good. So this is a really interesting tale because it was lost to time until the local opera house in Festoon, Minnesota was torn down recently and a time capsule from the late 1800s was found with a tale of Cordwood Pete. Okay, this makes me, first of all, want everyone to go bury a time capsule. Please do. Get on that. What stories would you put in? Oh my God, so many tweets. But then it also just makes me want to congratulate the people of of Minnesota for really appropriately using the time capsule. Like, this is exactly what you hope to find. A piece of folklore lost lost to the ages. I mean, this is the reason this exists, and well done you. That or a treasure map. Oh, treasure map would be, or just treasure. Well, that works. That's not, then that's treasure. (laughs) (laughs) That's a time capsule. It's a treasure chest. Like a bond or something. Has it been appreciating over the last few years? Yes, that's what I mean. Definitely. Now, of course, Paul was doing all this business, so he had to have a bookkeeper, and this was Johnny Inkslinger. How is Johnny Inkslinger, the bookkeeper, going to be a Superman? He was a genius. Cool. Okay, that's. He did math in his head. Nice. Some of our listeners may really think that's a magical power. I do. He perfected his own office appliances, created bookkeeping in the first place. Huh. And his fountain pen was made by running a hose from a barrel of ink. Because he went through so much because he was so smart. Of course. Oh my God. I love Johnny Inkslinger. Now, one of my favorite kind of kind of lost facets of this logger folklore is the fearsome critters. Fine. What's a fearsome critter? It's a critter. That's fearsome. Yep. Got it. 
Now, from the introduction of one of the editions from 1939, tall tales of adventure and hairbreadth's escape have always sprouted whenever the lumberjack has started timber operations. The logger, the North Woodsman in particular, is an imaginative fellow with an inborn fondness for practical jokery of various sorts. Hence, with the adventurous yarns, there has appeared an array of wood animals, frequently terrifying, sometimes vicious, sometimes merely unique, whose appearance, characteristics, habits, and habitat have for long been told and retold with a gradually increasing degree of astounding detail for the puzzlement and temporary terrorization of some camp greenhorns. Greenhorns make it, makes it all seem real. Newcomer, the, the, the rookie. Oh yeah, they're practical jokes they play on them. So this is basically logger hazing OG. Yeah, they might like send him to go catch a snipe. A snipe, a hunt. snipe hunt! We sent our kid on a snipe hunt. Or maybe find a nest of an upland trout. I've seen these. Well, no, I've, I've not seen these. I've seen the furry ones. So that's also part of their lore. That Good. It's so cold, this trout can grow fur to stay warm. In the trees. Oh, no, that's in the water. Okay. The upland trout will, will come out of the water to nest obviously, in the trees. Obviously. Keep up. Get your taxonomy tree out. Uh, fish shouldn't have hair. That's what this says. This taxonomy tree I'm making. Now, if you saw a tree that looked like it was shattered by lightning or wind damage, that might have been the splinter cat. What's a splinter cat? Well, its natural diet included wild bees, honey, and raccoons. Oh. So whenever it was a dark and stormy night. Of course. They would just haphazardly ram into trees until they found food. Well, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Uh not when it's dark and stormy. Watch out. And say that it's no wonder they died out. They did not have a very good food sourcing plan. Who said they died out? I heard one the other night. That was our daughter. Oh. Well, I thought that was the tree squeak. Might be. What's a tree squeak? So the old timers would tell you. We old boys know. And that sound is made by an untrustworthy animal. Still quite <laughs> common in the North Woods. Built something like a weasel. And with the same nice friendly disposition. Uh, sarcasm. He is chameleon-like and can wrap himself around a tree trunk and match the bark exactly. The, bu- the bark. The bark. The not an audible bark. No. Okay. He would do that too. He could have a whine like a panther, a squeal like a young pig, and sometimes roar like a bunch of cannon crackers at a shotgun wedding. <laughs> now one fearsome critter you could find to the winter, maybe when you're out hunting one of those fur-bearing trout, would be the snow snake. Oh no. Does it have fur too? No. Okay. Pink-eyed and white-bodied savage serpent. During the year of the two winters, they crossed over from Siberia via the Bering Strait. They have deadly venom. And they'll tell you that I was treated by a snow snake is still a much-used explanation of a late homecoming. (laughs) They tree people. It's a a joke. Okay. (laughs) So one of my favorites is the axe handle hound. Tell me more. It's an axe-shaped dog. (laughs) We've got one of those. Yep. The body is slender and axe handle shaped with short, stumpy legs and looks a good deal like a dachshund. (laughs) They would sneak into the camps after nightfall, hunting for axes and peavy handles, of which it was voraciously fond. (laughs) So it just like swallowed the whole thing. I guess. It's funny. (laughs) No, it includes some other random kind of American folklore creatures like the cactus cat. Or the hoop snake and other stuff like that in the books as well. So I know he was born in Maine. The storks, yeah. The storks. Very tired storks. Very tired storks brought him to his mother. And 
that should explain that and all. But really. What? Where did he come from? Storks. Got it. Where did the stories come from? Uh, Okay. Well, many will tell you. A tale. In 1914, the Red River Lumber Company in Minneapolis, which ran a sawmill operation equally, began peppering its brochures with Paul Bunyan stories. They'd hired William Lougheed to draw a series of pamphlets about this character, Paul Bunyan. And it became hugely popular. In 1914, 1916, and 1920, they did 5,000 copy runs. And over the next quarter of a century, they distributed more than 100,000 copies. And many popular collections were printed about him. Now, by the 1940s, so many sanitized and embellished Bunyan stories and collections had been put out that his name and image had been used by and his and his name and image had been used by so many advertisers and promoters that folklorist Richard Dorson coined the term fake lore to describe the Bunyan story. Fake lore. Fake lore. Fake it folklore. It sounds so ugly. It does. Fake folklore. So it's new constructions by yeah. one author that purport to be based on a collected body of folk knowledge. So if you wrote a story about a shoe gremlin that you created that was your shoe gremlin and said people in Louisiana have often said that yes. there is a shoe gremlin, you would be making fake lore. Because no one in Louisiana has said that. You say that. Right. And like, I, you know, I was just thinking Slender Man might be a good idea of that because it was invented by one guy. Right. But then it caught on. It caught on. And that's but it does purport to be older and it purports to be a story that's already circulating. Yes. yes. And I think that's also the key is it has to wear a convincing facade. Yeah, like it has present to present itself. Present though. itself as pre-existing, pre-established um, with roots that go back beyond this one narrative exploit. A lot of stories that pass as like Indian stories are mm-hmm. very much put in that category. And we've talked about one a million years ago, the rainbow people of the rainbow. That was such a good one. I was so disappointed. <laughs> Sorry. But is he fake lore? I really think the term fake lore is so hard to define. Oh, but we're going to try. So in the 1940s, around this time, there was a huge interest in folk art. And later that would give way to an interest in outsider art, which is basically the snobbiest thing that ever existed. I take issue with it because art is just art. And then you'll have people say, but like traditional crafts. But there was a huge interest in like finding this authentic American culture, this, you know, outside of the hoity-toity elitist circles, you know, that hadn't been like conventionally premiered at galleries or was not from people who had gone to art school or received some classical apprenticeship, this, you know, self-taught artist. And it kind of became this mythic figure within the elitist circles of like, there's so many wonderful artists out there in America, real America. And, and we no must one go, pays attention to them. And we must go find them and display their work. And so they did. And there was a huge interest in folklore and folk art. And you start seeing the things like the Writers Project, Old Lomax starts making his rounds, mm-hmm. things yeah. like that. Smithsonian Folkways. Yeah, it's all getting collected, documented. And it's part of this larger effort of something we talked about way, way back um, on the Gay Mafia episode where people were very busy 
working out America's national identity. How do we define We need a culture. We need a culture and we need it fast if we're going to be taken seriously as a real country with history. It's time we had history and culture, you guys. Right. So the people in the ivory tower were kind of looking down and from their stoop, high stoop. High stoop. High stoop? Sure. Highest of stoops. Yes. And they were looking down upon the commoner Mm -hmm. and saying, you are real. I must have your realness for myself. Please allow me to co-opt your realness, define it, quantify it, and rub a little on myself. Yes, yes. And so let's look at Paul Bunyan as a great example. We'll look at a few examples. So he is classically described as fake lore by By, Richard Dorsey. I mean, he's the first. He's Yeah, and was he? Was he? Well, depends on how you define it. So Paul Bunyan is much older than the 1914 pamphlet by the Red Mill Company. So somebody else made him up and like passed it off before that. Well, these were stories told around logging camps. But that's not real. I know. So the earliest reliably dated reference to Paul Bunyan comes from a logging camp north of Tomahawk during the winter of 1885. And then Charles Brown heard them from a retired camp foreman in Oshkosh in the early 1890s, many years before Lahid wrote this down. Now, there's an anonymous 1904 article in the Duluth News Tribune. His pet joke and the one with which the greenhorn of the camp is sure to be tired consists of a series of imaginative tales around the year Paul Bunyan lumbered in North Dakota. The great Paul is represented as getting out countless millions of timber in the year of the blue snow. Which the blue snow year is like this mythical like time. It's almost like the age of the heroes. That makes sense in Minnesota, right? The age of the heroes when gods walked among us. Like there's a strong Nordic influence. Yeah, yeah. It's great. But so did this asshole just not do his research? I guess he didn't have Google, to be fair. To I know. be fair. He didn't have newspapers.com. <laughs> So in 1906, the journalist James McGilvray wrote a bunny tale for a newspaper. It was then republished in 1910. And then he later worked with a poet that told the same story in the poem The Round River Drive in 1914 in American Lumberman. Now, this poem was the first real national exposure. And interestingly, it was done in rhythmic prose. Like what's an example of like rhythmic prose? Like an epic like bail oh my god now his stories were also published in j.e rockwell's some lumberjack miz in the elders book on february of 1910 saying that he was an eight foot 300 pound quick-tempered peerless smoking lumber baron who ruled over his subordinates with an iron hand he's a man of great might resourcefulness harder than rock whose voice shook the earth and made his workers jump the famous hero of lumberjack mythology was the center of almost every tale told in the camps in the old days. His exploits were related in every camp, every cedar camp, every white pine logging camp in northern Minnesota, and they lost nothing in the telling. Each camp had its own set of stories, and the men, in traveling from camp to camp, for the old-time lumberjack was a rover, swapped these yarns in the long winter evenings. When the steaming socks were hung over the roaring sheet iron stove. So that guy seems way more hardcore than the guy that makes takes Babe home and dries him off and fluffs him up. You know. I agree. He is very different than your, your Disney version. Right. It's a very sanitized version. He is much more of a, a real man. He's only eight feet tall, too, which is tall. 
but believable within the realm of possibility. Yes, not waterfall height. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, he created Yellowstone Falls for a shower. Right. And he also, you know, would look over the clouds when it was foggy. Yes, yes. Made it a lot easier. And so, you know, he had his good qualities. He was hardworking. He was... Resourceful. Resourceful. I liked that word. Yeah, inventive. But he has cons, too. He's quick-tempered. Yeah. And uh, hard-driving. Yeah, steel fist. And I, I do find the word uh, barren interesting yes, there. Yes. Because that at that time is when we were getting these, these super wealthy uh, tycoons. You know, it's when we've got the robber baron thing going on. Yeah, yeah. I find that image of him like, being a great man almost of industry, like yeah. a captain of industry, is an interesting interpretation of his right, power right or at least like the head man in charge you mm-hmm. know? he's the he's the guy you gotta answer to <laughs> he's got an hlic shirt on headlogger right. in charge yes hashtag hlic so some historians believe paul bunyan may have been based on a real person a french canadian logger named fabian joe fournier who was born in quebec around 1845 and moved to michigan after the civil war to join in this high-paying logging industry. He was brawny, six feet high, had supposedly two sets of teeth. Well, he might have. He might have had a you never know. genetic disorder or something. He was strong, efficient, fearsome among his peers. And he was hired as a boss logger. And, you know, he was reported to you know kind of rule with an iron fist. And he died in 1875 after being struck in the back of the head. With a with bolt of lightning. A ship carpenter's mallet okay no that's worse that's worse during a brawl now so you have also a french canadian war hero bonjean who was one of the leaders of the quebec farmers uprising of 1837 also known as the papineau rebellion which tried to push out those freaking british people out of our french canada you having flashbacks, babe? Flashbacks. Flashbacks. From my Past life. Great, 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 great grandparents. You poor little Akajin. Um, they kicked us out. Okay. I know they kicked you out, and the, the lobster followed from Maine, and, and now it's just a crawfish. I know that. all it's about true. the Cajuns. It's a true story. Okay, so this, let's get back. Let's, let's leave our family heritage for a second and go back to the bigger idea here. Back to Minnesota. Back to Minnesota. I have nothing to do with Minnesota. Fake lore. Labeled fake lore. That is like labeling Snow White as fake lore because Disney made the movie. I agree. I agree a thousand percent. Because the pamphlet may have been responsible for it getting out of its like authentic community, its natural setting, but it was based on those stories. I mean, even the Grimm brothers printed printed stories stories they heard from their female informants informants that went out to the towns let's just give a little a little hand there a little woman pride hey it is women's history month well there you go i don't know if it still will be when this releases but but yeah i mean the story was definitely with many many sources saying that it was out long before long before but it was changed and sanitized a little bit by that pamphlet like a a brand yeah, and then added to and changed by other authors and that sold books. And sometimes that's a thing, too. Like, paid writers. Mm-hmm. Having paid writers involved. They're getting paid to write this story. I know, and that's ridiculous. I think Carl Sandberg said it best. He often does. Who made Paul Bunyan? Who gave him birth as a myth? 
Who joked him into life as a master lumberjack? Who fashioned him forth as an apparition easing the hours of men amid axes and trees, saws and lumber? The people, the bookless people, they made Paul and had him alive long before he got into the books for those who read. He grew up in shanties around the hot stoves of winter, among socks and mittens drying in the smell of tobacco smoke and the roar of laughter mocking the outside weather. And some of Paul came overseas, in wooden bunks, below deck, in sailing vessels. And some of Paul is as old as the hills, and young as the alphabet. Carl Sandburg makes me want to make Neil Gaiman write another book. American Gods 2, with like Paul Bunyan and Pecco's Bill would be amazing. Oh, but like when he talks about like coming overseas, and the like all I can think about is American Gods. But... I think something that's very interesting about Paul in particular is that he's born of industry, not like industry, like industrial revolution, but out of a a kind of work, out of a trade or, you know, like a... Well, it is the industry. It is the working man in the industry. Right. These are working class heroes. Oh, absolutely. But no, you're right. You, You had all these settlers coming from... Canada, other parts of the United States, from France, overseas, it was Quebec. <laughs> and, you know, they were coming and taking jobs like like all immigrants do. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and lumber yards and all the other new industries that were popping up in this burgeoning country after the Civil War. And so when people migrate, so do stories. And when people are held in close quarters, those evolve very quickly. And when those people are migratory... So are the stories. And they spread. Stories do as people do. And it's interesting because you can look at a lot of the different big burgeoning industries in this young country that's rebuilding itself. And you, there are kind of tall tales and folk heroes to go along with all of them. Well, your job was your identity. It's very right. And let's take some pride in it. Let's give it some panache and pistache. Yeah, I mean, for example, you know, in Pennsylvania, you had the steel industry. Still do? Still do. The Steelers. In fact. Are named after them. What? <laughs> what? Did you know that? No. I feel like you just mansplained football to me or something. <laughs> Did you think it was spelled S-T-E-A-L? No, I thought like it was. Stole the bases or something. Yeah, because that's <laughs> what you do in football. My God. My God. No, I thought they were the Stillers. Oh, like Like whiskey. Jerry. Oh, you know, you had all of these people coming from Central Europe, Eastern Europe, basically the Austria-Hungarian Empire, and they were coming and settling in Pennsylvania to work in the steel mills. They weren't, I should, I say settled, but plenty were planning on just making enough money and going back and building farms Mm -hmm. in their homeland. But of course, many stayed. So all of these you know, Austro-Hungarian kind of people were given the worst jobs and the mm. most dangerous jobs because all the Americans and even the Northern Europeans got kind of preferential treatment. That cush 10-hour tw- shift. Right. No, they were still working those 12-hour shifts. They were barely making the $3 a week, working these hard jobs. And so, of course, they created their own folk hero. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I love these guys. I always think of them as like mascots, you know? You mean the folk heroes? Yeah. The tall tales? Yeah. Like I think that like when you look at Paul Bunyan, he is like the best lumberjack. And like you can imagine him being like 
out front at a game. I don't know. And like this, this guy too. I think of him as like very much a mascot. Well, so this guy is a guy named Joe Magarak. Awesome name. Sounds like a rock band. Well, it means donkey in Croatian or jackass. <gasps> I never. You never, never say such a thing. So maybe not the best last name, but I thought he was like a dude, like a thumbs up, yay, A plus dude. Well, so story goes <laughs> that if you would ask the workers why his name was Magarak or why they were calling their buddies Magarak, they would say it was because a donkey only likes to work and eat, work and eat. And so if that's all a worker would do. They were doing great. Then he was a Magarak. So was it just like a, a term of endearment among among the workers? Or was it like a character? Like, does he have a backstory? What are his motivations? <laughs> like fade to white. Hammers, steel, you know, lots of orange and shiny stuff. And suddenly a narrator breaks the silence. Behold. This story originally appeared in Scribner's Magazine in 1931, and it was written by Owen Francis, the saga of Joe Magarak, the steel man. And, you know, he had many legends that he is somebody who was made of steel. Mm. He was born in an iron mine. (laughs) Or that his, like, cradle was a furnace. Very literal. Very literal. He would work night and day and loved it. He was huge giant just like paul bunyan he could grab molten steel and squeeze it between his hands and create eight train rails <laughs> he would suddenly appear out of nowhere to save steel workers from danger oh that's cool and his story even ends tragically where he throws himself into the furnace to improve the quality of the steel oh <gasps> Because he's so pure of heart or something? Yeah, he's pure or something. Strong. He's strong. Strong. Sorry, I was trying to get the meaning there. I was trying to extrapolate that. I'm sure that resonates. So, Owen Francis was actually working in one of these steel mills. Oh, so this is like a very jungle scenario we have going in a way. on. Like Upton Sinclair-ish. He said, while working in the steel mill in Pennsylvania, I often heard one of the many Slavs who worked in the mills call one of his fellow workers Magarak. And then he gets that kind of explanation of why. And he says that I found that Joe Magrak is a man living only in the imagination of the hunky steel mill worker. Yeah. Yeah, he is. What's a hunky? Hunky. Like sexy? Like yeah, apparently it's like a really derogatory. Oh my God. Pejorative for people from like Central Europe. <gasps> now honky I know. I know Different. honky. Never heard honky. Now I have. Won't use it. Don't use that. So I'm just going to use it in quotes. I'm sorry, all of you hunkies. <laughs> That's not in quotes. He is to the hunky what Paul Bunyan is to the woodman and old Starmalong is to the men of the sea. With his active imagination and his childlike delight in tales of greatness, the hunky has created stories with Joe Magrak as the hero, the man the future become folklore for our country. It- Let's created by an independent community. It's already... F- okay. Hmm. Is it? it, it is it? Meh. This will be continue to be the question. So Francis, in his article, concluded that being called a Magrak was a compliment to these immigrant steelworkers. After all, to be hardworking was a virtue for an immigrant hoping to establish a livelihood from nothing. So... Painting with a broad brush, but seems nice enough. So now in 1951, the U.S. Steel Corporation even published a comic book... Joe, the genie of steel. Because Man of Steel was taken. I think, I think so. (laughs) 
The corporations were using Joe to convey their ideal of a hardworking steelworker. Quote, all I want is to work all the time except when I eat, just like a jackass. Cool. So Joe Magarek was everything the industry needed to succeed in their workers. Oh, it's very work will set you free. I don't like it. <laughs> and so this story is a little harder to trace because really the first writing of it is from 1931, Owen mm-hmm. Francis's article. And he was paid to write that story. But he was not paid to come up with Magarag. He didn't. Okay, sorry. Continue. Well, like some people even say, like, were they just messing with him? <laughs> that. That I believe. I kind of do too, you know? And we're going to keep coming to this question, like, is it fake lore? Is it fake lore? And and this one's a little harder to answer because it could have been created by the steel industry to try and encourage steel workers and represented their ideal worker. Or maybe it came from something that already existed. Maybe even a story that was satirical in nature and was built upon and adopted by the steel industry. It's so easy for me to believe that this really was something that people like threw around in a factory though. Like when you're in any kind of close environment, think about your family, you know, like we have a personality in our house that is not real, nor is he based on anything. And we talk, everyone in my family knows what we're talking about and who it is. Like when my dad and I pass each other at night and say, good night, Freddie. Now the grandkids do it. It's a stupid joke that was said offhandedly one day and now it's become a staple of like family conversation and a phrase that's used all the time. I can see it kind of blooming that way. And then, you know, when a new guy comes in, you're like, oh, yeah, he's born in a furnace. Then he's in on the joke and it goes from there. I mean, the transmission is believable and natural to me. I think that if it wasn't invented, it was like a satirical kind of story. Well, I can imagine it being almost like a Boudreaux and Thibodeau kind of story. Yeah, like a joke almost. Yeah. But it did convey those ideas of like what the industry wanted you to be like. All you have, need to do is work and be tough and strong and this is all that matters. Well, especially if they were thinking about the job as like temporary employment. Yeah, and they were. They were many, I can many s- were. I can see it being like you do your job, you get in, you get out, you do a good job, you go home. You know, like, you, I don't know. I, I can believe it was created i can also believe they were fucking with a guy from scribner's for sure <laughs> and i can believe that the cor- corporate overlords created a weirdly selfless highly motivated jackass made of steel so a lot of this folklore can sound like jokes without a doubt it's all got a, a humorous edge to it which i think is one of the things that leads to people like not taking it seriously I agree. like thinking it's fake lore like it's too silly far too silly <laughs> And I would tell them that Cinderella was once a pelican shitting on the floor in Spain. But we'll talk about that another day. (laughs) For another day. Here's an example of some silly, silly folklore. It was printed January 30th, 1949 in the Tennessean in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, according to this column entitled Mike Fink's Rival, Mike Fink, another folklore hero, but a real dude. He explains that there was this tough guy from the rock quarries in hard scrabble county wherever that may be the men there were so tough they cracked big rocks just by spitting on them and when the blast set off the men get right in the middle of it with a 10 year old white oak in their hand batting the flying boulders around or else playing catch with them without any gloves family night life there is not without charm he goes on to say they whip their children with barbed wire until the brats are 10 years old and after that it is the children who do the whipping. So now that you're familiar with Hardscrabble County, let me tell you a story. 
strangers are afraid to travel into the rock quarry country because the few venturesome ones who've tried it never came back to tell the tale. Oh, no. What is worse, however, is that occasionally the quarrymen came to town. Whenever that happens, everybody but the invalids and little children and cripples take to the hills until the danger is past. Now, one day, a lone wolf got right into town before anybody noticed him. He was riding two snarling panthers with a foot on each and lashing them with a whip made of three six-foot rattlesnakes knotted together. He stood a good eight feet without tiptoeing and didn't have enough fat on him to grease a one-egg skillet. He made for a shoe store and bought some brogans in the hardware store to get a mess of tough roofing nails, and he hammered the nails right through the soles of the shoes before putting them back on. That's the way I like it, he explained. It gives a good grip, and all you got to do when your footage is just wiggle it a little bit. Now his, it was one tough character. One tough cookie. His next errand, he went to the barber shop to get prettied up. But of course, the barber had to go borrow the tinsmith's shears to cut his hair and the plumber's blowtorch to give him a shave. Then to the saloon, the bartender knew enough to get down to his strongest brand of 40 rod. Some of it sloshed over on the bar and ate through the varnish, but it failed to please our tough friend. None of that belly wash for me. I'd soon give up. Pinky, sticky ice cream soda with a cherry on top. Give me prussic acid cocktail with a little sulfuric for a chaser. I don't recommend that. No, I wouldn't either. After tossing off a few, the visitor got off in a better humor and began amusing himself by spitting on the floor and burning holes right through the ground underneath. Soon, the bartender asked hopefully if the visitor expected to return to the quarries before nightfall. The quarryman shook his head sadly and said he didn't reckon he'd ever go back. To console himself, he snatched up a can of tomatoes off the shelf and gulped it down without bothering to chew it open. Don't it lay right heavy on your stomach, stranger, asked the bartender, awful unhappy because the quarryman wasn't leaving. Not long, the tough man answered, as soon as I digest a can from around the tomatoes. You aim to make your home here, the bartender wanted to know, still hoping he'd had heard wrong. Brimstone and damnation, no man, said the quarryman, so riled that he bit a foot-long chunk right out of the mahogany bar, spitting it in the bartender's face. I wouldn't live here for love nor money. I wouldn't be caught dead here. Well then, came back the bartender, getting a little bolder. Why did you leave the court? Don't you like it out there? Oh, I didn't leave. I didn't want to leave, but I had to. You had to? Why? Get into a fight or some trouble there? A fight? You plumb stock loony man. Who ever heard of a man getting into trouble over fighting in hard Scrabble County? Rock chorus. Why? Out that way we live on fighting before breakfast. Give me another drink of prussic acid, but hold the chaser this time. Bartender served him fearfully. A moody silence lengthened. He was afraid to break it, but more afraid of not knowing what had impelled the stranger to leave his natural haunts. Finally, he asked, Well, why'd you have to leave then? The silence continued a minute or two, and then the corpsman, looking shameful as a sheep-killing dog, sadly drawled, They chased me out because they said I was a sissy. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's such a good joke. It's a good joke. But it plays on all of those kind of ideas. The sissy from Hardscrabble County. <laughs> And it is apparently a classic folktale. But it plays on a lot of the ideas in the tall tales. The big, strong men that can you know, ride panthers and tame nature and do all sorts of superhuman things. Yeah. yeah. 
And so one other character, just like all of these are related to different industries and jobs, is down in the Texas oil fields. Oh, that's hard Scrabble County. If you were wondering, I think mm. there's actually one. Mm. It's near Cut and Shoot, which is a real place. Yeah. Past old dime box. And new dime box. It's just dime box. It's new dime box. It's now an early printing about Mr. Kemp Morgan. Good name. Is from the Dallas Morning News. In July of 1925. Naturally. And an article about Paul Bunyan. Fake the, the hero of American folk legend. It may be news to some in this connection to know that Paul Bunyan has come to Texas in the Southwest. <laughs> He's said to be a favorite along with the giant Kemp Morgan in the oil fields. And I wish that I had a parse of oil field tales about Paul. Now, Kemp Morgan was a giant driller of the oil countries. He had started by working in Paul Bunyan's logging camp in the Dakotas, but he had been puncturing all these holes in the country. He, when he heard about the oil fields opening, he moved down to Texas, just like so many people from around the country. Whenever the Texas oil fields opened in the early 20th century, you had thousands and thousands of people coming to work them because they were good jobs and they paid well. Yeah, they were basically lawless. That's true. Though, which was fun. And the living conditions were right awful. Right awful. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's like the only way you, you have to drift back into that dialect to even describe it. Yes, but Kent Morgan and apparently Paul Bunyan moved down there to work the oil fields. You know, along with everyone else, rural Texans and Okies were leaving ranches and farms. Drillers and laborers were coming from Pennsylvania, West Virginia oil fields. You had migratory workers coming. You know, this is the start of the Great Depression. And they employed thousands of people. And they were just like the lumberjacks. They were very migratory. And mm-hmm. so stories spread very quickly. So one story from 1931 titled Super Americans in the Iowa Bee. So that in the oil fields of Texas and Oklahoma, he's a rotary well digger and calls himself Kemp Morgan. He was like old Storm along and that he too had to put hinges in three different places on his derrick so that it could be folded up to let the sun and moon go by. It was so high it took 30 men to man it, 14 men going up, 14 men coming down, a man on top, and a man on duty. When he brought in his well, it spouted so high that he had to put a roof on it because St. Peter and all the angels were raising all H-L. It's censored. I know. It's funny. It is funny. They're raising all hell about the oil that was shooting through the floor of heaven. I can imagine St. Peter and the angels raising all hell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My robes are dirty. What is this? But Superman that he was, not all of Morgan's wells brought in oil. Occasionally he'd get a duster, a dry hole. He wasn't going to let that go to waste. He'd pull it up, he'd cut it up, and he'd send it off to Kansas so that all the farmers could use them for post holes. (laughs) Now, of course, he invented all the machinery in the trade. Oh, Howard Hughes' father would beg to differ. Right. Set the oil business on its feet. Now, one day, he became angered when he struck rock 3,000 feet down while drilling. Now, he pulled out the cable and slammed it back through the rock with such vigor that it pulled the derrick and all his men in after it. Now, discouraged, Kemp was ready to give up. But suddenly, he received a cable from his men who had emerged in China. And started the first oil branch there. Digging a hole to China. They dug a hole to China. One wonders. Chicken and egg here. Chicken and egg. So, we come to our question. Is it fake lore? Is it fake lore? Many would tell you yes. 
Why? Why does everyone want it to be fake so bad? I feel feel like that is such an academic thing to do. But folklorist <laughs> debate. There are many tales of Paul Bunyan collected between 1910 and 1920 <laughs> that were imported to the Southwest oil fields. Now, also, there was a guy named Gib Morgan. That's close. And he was a real cable tool driller who was born in 1842 in western Pennsylvania and followed the oil boom. Now, during his travels, he would tell a few tall tales about his adventures in the oil fields, and he eventually became the protagonist of his own tall tales, known throughout the oil fields of the Southwest and California that were collected at the beginning of the century. Kemp and Gibb are pretty close, I have to say. Yeah, so without a doubt to me, he's just like this kind of amalgamation of lots of different stories. But he was amalgamated by the people before it was written down. And they have these Paul Bunyan stories collected in the oil fields from before the pamphlet was produced. Even the, the Paul Bunyan pamphlet? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Oh. Yeah. yeah, 1910. That's four years before. Crazy. Right. So that's a, a no. It's definitely not fake lore. But it is this kind of amalgamation. Even like old Stormalong, who we're not going to talk about today... Is he's the sailor tall version. Tall tale sailor, yeah. And he's even mixed in. Just like all the stories are kind of mixed everything together. So there are a few we're not going to talk about today. Yeah, so there's other ones. There's a lot of settlers. There's, oh yeah, Feebold Feebolson. Feebold Feebolson. The Swede, which I think he is interesting. He could have gone in this episode probably. Um, Johnny Craw. I don't know what Johnny Craw is. It's a Kansas settler. Okay. Johnny Appleseed. Know that guy. Yeah, I've seen that cartoon. Yep. And John Henry, of course. It's another day. <laughs> it's another day. And of course, there's Pecosville. The West is for another day as the well. The West is for another day as so well. So we don't mean to disappoint. <laughs> we, they will come about. Um, but there are also these heroes that are based on real people that you'll see kind of like lumped into this category of you know tall tale characters as well. Like Casey Jones is one, you know, the brave engineer. He was real, real dude. So today we really wanted to focus on the ones that are like mysteries. Like where did they come from? Because this is, you know, part of the making of America is the creation of our own myth, we've been told. Well, we've talked about it, especially in our... Headless Horseman episode, mm-hmm. the creation of the American myth, or Dr. the creation of American culture. And this is something that's just so fascinating because it always still comes to that question where you're like, is it fake lore? Is it folklore? Where does the real story end and where does it come from those paid writers or from the marketing department of some large company? Well, this question really becomes like a... a- parlor subject, if you will, in the years following World War One and leading to 1960, kind yeah. of this post-war years, when we are desperately in search of the great American mythos and national character. Now, post-war America took itself quite seriously. One historian writing at the time declared, our culture is unique in its outlawing of the irrational. Oh, well, that sounds like fun. Well, famous last words, right? But there was this new national character that needed to, to stick around. It was very good for us, we thought. We're not migratory workers anymore. We're not going where the jobs are. We're homesteading. We fought the world and won. The Great War. The war to end In all wars. all wars. And its sequel. Oh, it's never as good as the original. No, <laughs> it was worse, but in a different way. So 
We had this national pride. We had these real war heroes we could be proud of. We loved them. There were so many more people going and seeking higher education because of the GI Bill. And more highly educated citizens meant more service industry and white collar jobs. Fewer people like identifying with these, you know, heroic characters. And then there was this weird phenomena called the suburbs. That is a weird phenomena. And a great Arcade Fire album. So these were new, like, ground-up communities. Now, from the end of World War II to 1960, the population of the suburbs in America doubled. At the beginning of the 1900s, two-thirds of Americans had lived on rural farms. But by 1960, only one-third did. So it's a massive reorganization. Big shift, for sure. I mean, it's a huge change to the culture of a country. Right. In a very short amount of time, relatively speaking. And some culture shock to go with it. Now, many of these communities were themed. Themed? Yes. They attempted to have like an affected uniformity. Okay. And oftentimes they would have like all ranch style houses or all villas or all whatever. And sometimes they'd have like imported or fabricated landmarks and kind of like ambiance like they might have a windmill or whatever i guess we still see some of that yeah but southern california was really ground zero for this kind of development because it was sort of a a blank slate there wasn't much there but there was going to be there was a lot of outward growth people were also very interested in moving where it was sunny and pretty and warm all the time new yorker film critic pauline kale once wrote in los angeles you can live any way you want Except the urban way. It's the fantasy brothel where you can live the fantasy of your choice. And one example of such fantasies is Venice, California. It's just southwest of Los Angeles, near a beach, and a real estate developer and utopian. Oh, fun. Abbott Kinney built an amusement park around this artificial lagoon with canals and gondoliers. And oh, so he was like trying to make a Venice. Venice, yes. And he called it the Venice of America. Now, other developers got in the mix and they started making their own canals with their own like little systems and made this like little labyrinthine Venice thing. And the whole thing became a real town, which was called Venice. And then in the 1920s, it officially became part of Los Angeles. So we have a theme park, a thing that's supposed to be a novelty used for recreation, becoming first its own town and then part of another city. Crazy. You're seeing the lines blur a little bit between like, that's for fun and that's for real life. And this extended to other communities. There was the Malibu Film Colony, which had medieval stone castles. And then there was Laughlin Park, and it was made up of Italian, French, 17th century English and 19th century American, meaning Midwestern, style homes. That's just confusing. Right. But you could pick whichever fantasy you wanted. It was the life card draw of real estate. And Miami Beach in Florida kind of followed suit, but it was actually a fully manufactured community. The developer had to dredge sand and have soil shipped in to build it. And then he proceeded to make all of the homes there look like Houses from various coastlines of various European coastal cities. Space and single unit homes were now becoming like a mandatory. And I read this wonderful book that I would highly recommend before we did this episode. Pause, go read it. Pause, go read it. It's called Fantasyland and it's by Kurt Anderson. It's long. It's a 500 year history. It's got to be long. Got to be. But it's good. 
I wouldn't trust a 500-year history that was like 30 pages. Oh, I'd throw it away. I'd give it to Remy. I feel like this must be for children. He writes, Suburbia became the nearly mandatory ideal. One's own separate house, one's own acreage, the requisite embodiment and expression of American individualism. No other developed country has such a huge fraction of its people living at such low densities on such massive amounts of land. Now, at the same time that we're seeing this exodus to the suburbs, the middle class is becoming very secure. Right, which is what leads to the suburbs. Right. And you have things like conveniences, you know, appliances. Washing machines. And literal mobility, car ownership, and Mm. more and more homes, which is allowing people to get out and explore the countryside a bit more once they are comfortably situated in suburbia. But now that people were quietly tucked away in the suburbs... I mean, it's time for the Great American Road Trip. Indeed it is. We have our car, our summer break. We get five days of vacation. And if you don't stop it, I'm going to turn this car around. You stop it! <laughs> You're holding the map upside down! Don't tell me how to drive! You know, road trips. Fun. Fun times. But during this time, we needed places to go in our new shiny cars, and we were all getting a little bit nostalgic for the good old days when people actually worked. The good old days. Agrarian America. Ugh, don't want to go back. You can't make me. Says the person that just planted a garden. <laughs> I don't want hookworm is all I'm saying. I don't want hookworms. But America had become full of these museum-like tourist attractions that mixed and matched the actually old and the pretend old. Blurring of the line of real and fake. Oh yeah, we're real good at that here. It's kind of our thing. And it was like this moment of national crisis where it's like, oh my God, things are getting too cushy. We're not rugged individuals anymore. We've got to preserve this heritage we have so that we will preserve the American identity that we all just found out about five minutes ago. We're going to need to fake it. Ish. So it seems like people were a little ashamed of their new lifestyle. And people took advantage of that in a niche industry was born. Now, this took several guises in several different locations, but there are a few prominent examples that stand out, such as this preservation passion project, Colonial Williamsburg. You may have heard of it. It's a living history museum today, but back in the 1930s, it was a real live town. Oh, you mean like people lived there and worked there? Yes. Okay. Not anymore. Well... Not in this one part of town. There's still a Williamsburg around there, but there's this little... It was on a colonial Williamsburg. Right. But in the 1930s, John D. Rockefeller Jr. and his wife, Abby, along with a reverend named Goodwin, decided that they were going to preserve this very important stone in the crown of American history. Right. It's our colonial heritage. Crowns. See what I did there? I see that. Yeah. Williamsburg, as I said, was a real functioning town. And they didn't want word getting out about what they were planning. So they began quietly buying up real estate in the historic district downtown. Just going to have that and playing Monopoly. Playing Monopoly. makes sense. It was Rockefeller. Right. Now, they wanted to purchase the entire historic district eventually. And today, there are about 500 buildings in the area. 88 of them are, quote, original to the colonial era. That means all the other ones are hodgepodge. So a fifth, less than a fifth right. of them. And for example, this is just spot on for this story. The Capitol building is a 1930s Beaux Arts approximation of a 1705 building at the east end of the historic area. How can anything Beaux Arts 
look like it was from the 1700s. Well, they hired some architects who rebuilt it as they thought it should have been done, not as record shows that it was. And so it's just this like, well, that's a nice building. They're like, oh, here's the directions. And they're like, screw the directions. I trained in France. Now, upon leaving his management position, Reverend Goodwin, who'd been involved in the original buying up of all these properties, which really did eventually get pretty ugly, and like they kicked shopkeepers out. There was a whole thing. He was troubled because he perceived that they were moving toward a less rigorous standard of authenticity. And so his parting words to the management were, if there's one firm guiding and restraining word which should be passed on those who will be responsible for the restoration in the future, that one word is integrity. A departure from truth here and there will inevitably produce a cumulative deterioration of authenticity and consequent loss of public confidence. Loyalty demands that this principle of integrity be adhered to. So did they adhere to it? May have fallen on deaf ears. Hmm. So Ada Louise Huxtable, an architecture critic, wrote in 1965, Williamsburg is an extraordinary, conscientious, and expensive exercise in historical play acting. Fun. In which the real and imitation treasures and modern-day copies are carelessly confused in everyone's mind. Partly because it is so well done, the end effect has been to devalue authenticity and denigrate the genuine heritage of less picturesque periods to which an era and people gave life. But there were attempts to answer this criticism in a way that made sense and defend their position. Colonial Williamsburg's historic area is a compromise between historical authenticity and common sense, between realism and gentle ambiance, between being a moment in time in the 18th century and being nearly 300 years old. Critics assert that historical authenticity is not antithetical to common sense. (laughs) What? That is odd. Like Like, that you have to compromise you have to compromise you have to have this common sense like well we don't want slaves there that would ruin (laughs) the ambiance the the gentle ambiance i don't want to ruin the ambiance of my beau arts building (laughs) i can just picture somebody going no no slaves because ambiance you know very peckish little man i don't know i'm pretty sure that ambiance is actually the reason the civil war started (laughs) This is just ruining the, the ambiance. We had these beautiful plantations. And it's just my, the ambiance of the magnolia trees and my, my minted julep is just being ruined here. I forgot my dog's name. I was going to talk about my dog. Yes, they call that a false dichotomy, the critics do. I wonder why. I now, the Colonial Williamsburg does try to account for new evidence that comes to life and make changes accordingly in their defense they say. So in March 2016, the foundation's new president and CEO, Mitchell Rice, told the Richmond Times-Dispatch that Colonial Williamsburg aimed to be, and I quote, accurate-ish. I love it. (laughs) It's the story of America, folks. So as I said, it is a living history museum, and they do offer educational programs, um, a variety of them, and you can go learn about math or whatever you need to learn about they say math science history what science are they teaching in colonial i mean come on but anyway you can go there they have a homeschool program they also have adult group tours which that blurb i've got to read you this is from their website 
Experience everything from our live action and revolutionary city to our modern art museums with one of our inclusive group packages designed to fit the requirements of day trippers, Groups on tight schedules are those who desire a more structured experience. Our packages provide an effortless option for a group visit. Who is going to like quickly learn about history? I love this image of women, like women with their fanny packs, who are like, "Oh, mm, I've got to get on my like what? Where are you going? Um, We went to DC like a year ago, and that's what everyone was doing. Yeah, but how long did I take in the National History Museum? Like, does it surprise you that this surprises me? I guess is what I'm saying. So what if I can't make it to Colonial Williamsburg? Well, first of all, how hard is it? It's actually pretty hard. It's actually pretty hard because they have like scenic byways designated. For for the ambiance. For the ambiance. Literally, they argued in the state of Virginia that they could not develop these things because of ambiance. Ambiance. But if you can't make it. They have digital field trips. You can do a digital field trip to Colonial Williamsburg with your class. So what would this encompass? Skype. Skype what? A building? No, one of the actors, one of the the period dress people. Okay. And so they stay in character. They stay in character. They're like, what is this magic box? This is Satan's work. So many laptops have been hanged. Throw it in the lake. It didn't float. It's not a witch. Go dig it out. But yes, they'll like teach you how to shear a sheep with a knife or whatever. Via Skype. Via Skype. So magical colonial Williamsburg. I still want to go. Like I'm not, I'm like dogging it out pretty hard, but I'm like, I'm reading online. I'm like, they've got a, they've got a coin exhibit. I'm going to need to check that out. So now Rockefeller was not the only guy doing this passion projects. One other great industrial magnet of the time also thought this would be a great idea and that would be henry ford hmm. who i keep threatening to do an entire episode on one day i'm so i'm guessing he got a lot of buildings and whitewashed them huh. yeah. kind of. yeah. <laughs> so by 1920 ford was determined to start a museum that would emphasize industrial history and quote give people a true picture of the development of the country He said, I'm collecting the history of our people as written into things their hands made and used. When we are through, we shall have reproduced American life as lived. And that, I think, is the best way of preserving at least a part of our history and tradition. I'm so nervous about Henry Ford telling our history. I'm so nervous about it. So he did build a museum that has a lot of industrial, you know, like, inventions and great inventions of Americans. But next to it is... Greenfield Village, a collection of buildings. Now, there's nearly 100 buildings there, many being moved from their original locations. Many of these are very historical homes, such as the house where Noah Webster penned the first American dictionary. I want to go. Oh, my God. Now I'm in. I was nervous. I was nervous, but now I'm in. Uh, Edison's Menlo Park. Like all of it? Yeah. Holy shit. Even the inside is like laid out like he had it. The courtroom used by Abraham Lincoln during his career in law. He moved a courtroom. The workshop used by the Wright brothers, like their bike shop. No. And also Henry Ford's birthplace, which was moved uh, in 1944. And he had it furnished exactly as it was during his, his mother's time. I love, this is like men who want to play with dolls. Like, and it's fine. You can, but like. Hey, what are you saying? What are you saying? <laughs> I'm saying like. He needed, like, 
a train set or something. Well, and so there's a train. There's a working train. <laughs> okay, so the thing, the difference between men and women on dolls is just scale. Scale is all that matters. Bigger the toys, right? Bigger the boys, bigger the toys. I've heard that. Yeah. I've seen. I think I've seen it on the back of a truck. Bumper stickers and things. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true. <laughs> now, he also built some replicas, such as there's a replica of Independence Hall at the entrance of the complex. There are like seven of those in the United States, aren't there? And we're going to talk about several of them. Okay, cool. And of course, you know, just building just like Rockefeller kind of did like a, you know, working town where there's different areas and people in period clothes to show different how we used to live in America. When it was real. When it was real. Okay. So the park was dedicated in 1929. It was kept private for a few years and eventually was open to the public in June of 1933. You can only go like half the year because it's in Michigan though, right? I guess so. So Greenfield Village and Colonial Williamsburg really influenced that historic preservation movement. Developed this type of historic preservation centered on preserving, interpreting historic buildings, recreating village settings. It really did take hold because like literally every time I've ever gone to like visit a historical home, there's some girl with like modern eyeliner and a period plantation dress. Well, this became so popular. I just think in Lafayette, which is like the heart of Cajun country, like where I grew up, there are two competing, two competing Cajun villages. That are of this model, like old Cajun homes, and they do it like they used to, and there's people in period dress, and we really just go to see the Christmas lights. <laughs> but you go on field trips with school and, and things like that, and you know, of course tourists go to it, and they're nice little attractions. Well, when, where I grew up, there's a recreation of the fort that was originally built in the oldest town in the Louisiana Purchase, where I'm from, in Natchitoches. They would have people in period dress. Now, my best friend Amanda lived on the river and one day we were out on her gazebo she was swear to god this is all true we were in high school we were out on her gazebo and we see across the river like out in the reeds this man in full colonial garb just standing there was it a ghost smoking a pipe it was a ghost she and i both like turned white i was like do you see that and she's like yeah i see that and then he raises his other hand He's holding a Coke. And we realized that the fort backed up <laughs> to her house across the river. We had never like put that layout together in our minds. But yeah, it was pretty funny. But you know, this was not Ford's first attempt to really define America and Americanness. I don't want to talk about the Articles of Zion. That's an episode. Okay. One day, I swear to God. I don't want to talk about the America First movement. We already did that. So There's more? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, of course, Ford made his name with the Model T. And by 1914, he'd perfected the idea of mass production with his progressive assembly lines. You can drive the Model T at the Greenfield Village. You can. And these assembly line workers made really good money. They would pay up to $5 a day. That is really good money. But if you want to make the big bucks... You had to fit Ford's idea of the ideal American worker to a T. To a model T? You heard me. We got all the puns. We got the puns. Puns. We've got them. So they basically, the test was, he'd take them to dinner, and if they salted their food before they ate it, done. I think that's apocryphal, but I still love the story. (laughs) But that wasn't the test. No, no, no. Okay, there's more. So Ford established the sociological department. And they developed a system of rules and codes of behavior for Ford employees that they had to meet. Now, they not only monitor people on their jobs, but at home as well. I Sometimes just dropping in. 
I think that's unconstitutional. Not if you agree to it. Oh, yeah, she signed something. Okay. So they would check for cleanliness, making sure the kids were going to school. So maybe you had a bunch of renters or a bunch of loafers around. Probably a bunch of family. Exactly. They would teach the wives about home cooking, cleaning, and hygiene. And he also established the Ford English School. Okay. Which students were required to attend class before or after their work shifts. Oh my God. But their work shifts were like 30 hours it's long. convenient. Okay. It's convenient. So this was wildly successful. And Six. other companies and social organizations patterned their program after it. A Ford English School diploma was so valuable that it counted as many of immigration's naturalization requirements for the citizenship exam. And then, my favorite part, as recounted in Jeffrey Eugenides' Middlesex, which... If you haven't read it. ...is one of Sam's favorite books. It really is. It's excellent. The graduation ceremony. So students were transformed into Americans. Now, how else would you do this but put them into the Great American Melting Pot? So they literally had a Great American Melting Pot on stage, labeled... Workers would enter the giant prop in traditional clothing of their countries. Now imagine a rousing, triumphant score, a quick change, and out would emerge Americans in suits and hats and ties, waving American flags. And from, from the Henry Ford website, having undergone a spiritual smelting process where the impurities of foreignness were burnt off as slag to be tossed away, leaving a new... 100% American. And they say, like, from the 1934, they say that. No, they didn't say that. I have a feeling the writer probably was, like, quoting it, but man. You really (laughs) should cite your sources, because it sounds like Henry Ford's still okay with slag. They're still like, yeah, get that slag off. Slag. What a nasty word. Ugh. Now, if one had a Model T, one might go out looking for... A good time and Some come less historical road tripping. Less historical road tripping, and one might find roadside fruit stand. How quaint! Yeah, yeah, definitely. How quaint! And one such fruit stand was established for um, sale of a new berry, yeah, a, a new species he had created called the boysenberry, and uh, the man who had created that berry was known as Walter Knott. And Walter Knott and his family would go out on the roadside and they'd sell. Berries. And then eventually they began selling jam, jelly, pies. I mean, they're branching out all over the place. Crazy, right? And things went that way for a bit until 1934. This started in the 20s. They'd been at it a while. And then they really got crazy. They added chicken dinners. All right. That sounds like a good time. It does sound like a good time. And they opened a little tea room that they called Mrs. Knott's Chicken Dinner Restaurant, which A plus name, I would eat there. And it became this kind of little tourist draw. And so once you have a, a chicken dinner restaurant. Next step. Ghost town. What? Yes. Like ghost. No, like a, like a western town. An abandoned western town. An abandoned western town, which Walter Knott began constructing. So he in just ni- built it. Whole in cloth. In 1940, yes. He's quite a builder. He's like Noah, this one. And then in 1950, he established a summer-long county fair. And that featured the park's first ride, which was... A stagecoach drawn by horses. And then in 1952, he added a railroad. These men in the railroads. What's with the railroads? They're cool. They are cool. They go choo-choo. 
True. And he called it the Calico Railroad. And then he began charging admission in 1968. So from 1920 to 1968, no admission. Just trying to keep people around a little bit longer. Buy some jam. Get them to buy some jam. Buy some, I'm probably sure he charged a penny for a ride or something. Who knows? Now, according to Carolyn Roland Dumont of Paris West University. Why do you keep bringing the French into this? Well, people came from France to go to Knott's Farm. It became very popular in the 60s, you see, and she'll explain why. It appealed to the conservative Americans, young and old, because it idealized the representation, a past devoid of social and racial tensions, that it offered stood in sharp contrast to the politics and social upheaval affecting California since the free speech movement erupted at the University of California at Berkeley in 1964. Now, through the years, they added various attractions, such as, you know, a barn dance, and then a kingdom of dinosaurs, and the Bigfoot Rapids, and roller coasters, and things. They really got into the whole amusement park business. But it was sold off by the children after Walter and Cordelia Knott died. Now, the berry portion was sold first to ConAgra Foods, and then later to Smuckers. So maybe you're eating Knott's Farm jelly. But in 1997... They sold the amusement park operations to the Cedar Fair Entertainment Company. It is still operational today. But they'd first been given a chance to sell to Disneyland. Oh, rivals, arch nemesis. Yes. And the kids couldn't do it because they were afraid that the Disney people would erase everything their father had built. They're probably right. Yeah, they probably were. So, ta-da, there is still a Knott's Berry Farm today. It's still called, called Knott's Berry Farm. And it maintains these interesting ties to history there's a town blacksmith there's an old schoolhouse which was moved from kansas very big in the moving buildings also the western trails museum which uses that ghost town that was constructed in the 40s Mm. there's a california mission model museum there's a livery stable where you can meet calico the horse or brutus the burrow and talk to equestrian staff seasonally and then there's an Independence Hall. because Everyone's of, got an Independence Hall. Now, Mr. Knott built that one brick by brick, and he wanted it to be a free resource for public education, and it's very much based on the one in Philadelphia. Claims to be a, quote, brick by brick replica. And while there, you can also pan for gold, travel back in time, and experience life as a prospector trying to stake your claim. Knott's gold prospector will show you the ropes and tell you interesting facts about the gold rush era, and teach you how to pan for gold. Nominal fee required. Nominal. Nominal. One nugget of gold. So they were definitely relying on that kind of authentic fake, that accurate-ish idea of American history. Now, with this new emerging middle class, when we weren't out road tripping around America. Getting fat on pies. That sounds fantastic. Let's go. We might be at home watching these newfangled televisions. These TVs, you know, they they presented this new united vision of America. And everyone saw it. And everyone saw the same thing. And it was free-ish. You could get the TV set. Buy the TV. At the beginning of the 40s, a fraction of 1% of Americans had TVs. And just a few years later, there was a TV in almost every household. Now, at the end of the decade of the 1940s, the average American spent a third of his or her waking hours watching TV. Now, television supplied the super realistic fantasies, including all of our new advertisements. They required no reading, no trips to the theater, not even the imaginative work of listening to radio plays. People were spending more and more time consuming fiction and advertising in a more 
passive, continuous, quasi-hypnotic state. And every industry needs its folk hero, right? Apparently. (laughs) And that leads us to the king of television, or mass marketing, or mass media, or whatever you want to call him. Uh, Andrew O'Hagan calls him the king of irresistible falsehood. I like that. Who could it be, Jacob? Mr. Walt Disney. Mr. Walt Disney, indeed. Now, Mr. Walt Disney was born in 1901, New American Century, in Chicago. Perfect. Perfect. His father was a carpenter for one of the world's fairs when he was a kid, and that greatly influenced his views on life and things. I just don't see how that influenced things. I don't see it. Things. I don't see it. Where, I don't see it. When he was five, his family moved to a small town called Marceline, Missouri, and he lived there from the time he was five until he turned 11. Now, he idealized this experience for the rest of his life. One biographer stated, it was where he first had the normal, settled life that a child craves. His wife, Lillian, would later say that his years in Marceline were the most important years of his life. Imagine the years from the time you're five to the time you're 11 being the most important part of your life. And they are the formative years. I guess so. But look at everything else he did. I think that's what she was talking about. Yeah. You know, like that's what led to all everything else. That's what led to him having these ideas of, of good home America and family and we'll get there. mainstream we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Don't rush it. Let the Disney wash over you. His father struggled to make it as a farmer in Marceline, so eventually they moved to the more urban, by comparison, Kansas City, Missouri. And his father became a newspaper distributor, which meant that he needed employees to deliver the newspaper. Paper boys. He had boys. He had papers. He had paper boys. (laughs) And so Walt became a paper boy. And he later said of the experience, I don't regret having work like I worked. I can't even remember that it bothered me. I mean... I have no recollection of ever being unhappy in my life, which I'm sure he didn't. I look back, and I, and I worked from way back there, and I was happy all the time. I was excited. I was doing things, he says. However, based on interviews with people who knew him when he was a kid or knew of him when he was a kid, Life Magazine reports his experience this way. Little Walt would rise at pre-dawn, darkness, and work all day, often in freezing cold and snow, so deep that it sometimes reached his neck, now and then he fell asleep, exhausted, in apartment foyers. So a big old set of rosy glasses. Rosy retrospection is going to be a major theme as we discuss this man. He actually ended up cutting his childhood a little bit short himself um, when he signed up to be a World War I ambulance driver in France. He was only 16 at the time. It's taking the Hemingway route. Yep, and he um, falsified his papers because he was so anxious to join the war effort. Now, upon his return from France, he took a job working at this little agency in Kansas City doing advertising, like little short films and animations and things like that. And the group was called the Kansas City Slide Company. He says, the trick of making things move on film, that's what got me. But soon, he was moving to California where the... Winter never comes and there's gold everywhere to join his big brother, Roy. He says, I packed up all my worldly goods, a pair of trousers, a checkered coat, a lot of drawing materials, and the last of the fairy tale reels we had made in a kind of frayed cardboard suitcase. And with that and the wonderful audacity of youth, I went to Hollywood, arriving with just $40. Are you sure he didn't put it in a hobo sack? I think he did. Like, I'm surprised he didn't say that. On his shoulder. Honestly. And, like, walk down the This sounds so polished. Like, this is so... The sun was setting in the the background. The audacity of youth. Swelling music. (sighs) And there, like so many animators before him, he set out in search of a distinctive animal. 
Felix the yes. Cat was yes. the gold standard at the time, yeah. and he just had to have him a Felix the Cat. I'm now just thinking of the Felix clocks. Oh. I wonder if he stole that idea. <laughs> well, we all know he got his start in animation. But his first major success as an animator was an animal. Oswald. Oswald the, the Lucky, Lucky Rabbit. Rabbit. The Lucky Rabbit. He had both his feet. Oh, I was going to say it. Now, believing that this character would give him bargaining leverage, he went in to renegotiate his contract with Universal Pictures, at which time he was informed of the unfortunate fact that the studio owned Oswald and that they would be cutting his salary. So he was miffed and he left and he decided that he needed to find a replacement that would be all his own that he would have the rights to, you know, bootstraps, etc. But one animator had come with him from Universal. His name was Ub Iwerks and they came up with a replacement together. And this was a mouse. It was definitely not a rabbit. Definitely, definitely not, not a rabbit. rabbit. It was a mouse. I mean, they're in the same genus, but... It might both be rodents, but this one was completely different. This one was a mouse, and they named this mouse Mortimer. Ooh, catchy. Catchy. The name was quickly changed. Yeah. And legend has it that it's because Lily, his wife, said that Mortimer was too sissy. Oh, I must have gotten kicked out of the... Hard Scrabble County. Yes, absolutely. I have not used the word sissy in, like... Sissy. Maybe ever. <laughs> I've used it twice now in this episode. It's weird. Sissy, hunky, we're getting all the terrible terms. So Mickey Mouse made his debut on November the 18th of 1928 in New York City. He's going to turn 90 this year. Ooh. I'm sure there'll be a party at this I'm sure there will be. Now, the first two cartoons starring Mickey did not make a lot of noise, but then... Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie made noise. First animated synchronized sound cartoon. It was amazing. He invented that technology along with one of his co-workers, Wilfred Jackson. It was a smashing success. Life magazine reported everybody liked Mickey. The children who thought he was funny. The philosophers who thought he represented America's raucous individualism. The aesthetes who saw in him the first successful adjustment of linear design to the fluttering motion of the films. Oh, wow. It's a lot of writing about a six-minute cartoon, right? That's a lot of $100 words. I know. Now, this was followed by Plain Crazy, in which Mickey played a rodent version of Charles Lindbergh. And I only mention that so that we can, like, do the hat trick. Do of... we get bingo? Yeah. We got uh, America him? First Bingo. Yes. We did. Now, two years later, there was Mickey merch everywhere. The merchandising business began kind of in an offhand way. Life reported when somebody offered Walt $300 for the right to put Mickey on a line of stationery. And Walt's like, yes. And then they're like, and lunchboxes and underwear and shirts and hats and watches. And And that's the most American thing ever. Yes. (laughs) Merchandising was invented. And the Mickey watch is the most popular timepiece of all time. I own two. You do? One's an heirloom. Now, Mickey appeared in color for the first time in 1935. The band's concert's use of Technicolor was so innovative that critics still consider it to be a masterpiece. See, that one doesn't ring a bell for me. Like, I cannot place it. It was on my VHS. Oh, of course. So by 1937, Disney Studios was producing 12 Mickey shorts each year, and Disney himself was providing the voice for the mouse. Now, in later years, he had to stop doing this. Why? His heavy smoking made it impossible <laughs> for him to do the falsetto. Hey, Goofy. Oh, God. No, he scared me. 
Oh, gosh. (laughs) 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 Sorry, Goofy. (laughs) You sound like you're going through puberty. (laughs) That was fun. Uh, (laughs) No, Mickey had a very close association with children, which meant that he could not get into many scrapes. He couldn't get into many? What? You heard me. (laughs) They weren't married. (gasps) And they're related. They had the same last name. Ever think about that? I have. Don't say that. (laughs) Ducks, too. They weren't wearing pants. No one's wearing... Mickey didn't wear a shirt. That's a little more acceptable. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) You tell me. Which would you rather me wear one of tomorrow? (laughs) The the signs on the convenience store all say no shoes, no shirt, no service. They say nothing of pants. (laughs) But this is from the New York Times in 1930, under the headline, The Censor. Although there is no morality clause in the contract of Mickey Mouse, the vivacious rodent of the animated screen must leave a model life on screen to meet the approval of the censorship boards all over the world. Forbidden were drinking or smoking, and Mickey was not allowed to cut any suggestive capers, and keen attention had to be paid to... Avoid wounding various national dignities. Because he's the ideal American mouse. Right. And he had wounded the Germans' national dignity. What? Yes, there was a cartoon called Barnyard Battle. Yeah. In which Mickey and some other mouse friends took on some cats. Yes. And the cats' uniforms looked vaguely like the German military's uniforms in 1930. Gestapo cat. Yeah. And so that had wounded Germany's national dignity. Well, he'd keep up with that. Yeah. But Donald Duck was kind of invented to be the more um, lampoony character. Ah. That's why he's in all like the war shorts. And it's why we have DuckTales. It's basically uh, why we have DuckTales. That's why he's in. I always wonder why he was in all the war shorts. Like, why is he getting drafted? Yeah. Why Donald Duck? He doesn't even wear pants. He's definitely not going to pass the psyche valve. I mean, if Elvis can get drafted, Mickey can get drafted. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Burn my draft card. Oh, gosh. Bone spurs. Yo, hook. I don't think Goofy passed the mental test. Of course, fellas. So, after that ridiculousness, I mean our ridiculousness, <laughs> Walt definitely wanted to move past the Mickey character. He had a vision. He did. And he, he was all about the vision. So many of them. But he came, became pretty obsessed with the idea of capturing realism in animation. Because, you know, there weren't live action movies, but there were. Yeah, but you could do so much more. There weren't the special effects. Right. So you could achieve. You couldn't do the magic the magic mirror in real life like you could do in animation. True. Very true. So he became obsessed with kind of creating this authentic fake, you could say. One of his animators, Cavalier, notes Walt was industrializing the animation process without killing the artistry. He and his people analyzed the characteristics of movement, human and animal. Hey, he'd like bring animals into the studio. He had actresses acting out all of the roles of all the princesses. I love watching those old clips on the extras. I know, they really are great. I mean, they did that through, I mean, they do it now, but. I, I remember mean, The Lion King especially. Yeah, but like Ariel. Mm-hmm. I mean, they like would put them in sets, like little mini sets. He was very interested in the way living creatures move when they are feeling particular emotions. Now, he was also a keen perfectionist. He would tear up entire sequences that had been animated, which is, you know, how long of work? Weeks? Weeks of work? 
if he didn't like a particular expression or movement. For example, one sequence in Snow White was scrapped because the evil queen appeared to Walt to look like she was carrying a big load of laundry. He wanted the drawings to act and to seem to have an interior life. He also did a lot of pioneering of tech required for animation. A lot of his work on color is considered revolutionary, and he invented the multiplane camera, which allowed animated cells to be filmed in a way that gave them more depth and made the characters seem to move within an environment. He was so passionate about animation that he expected all of his employees to be the same way. He became so immersed in the production of the films that he even spoke of the characters as if they were real people, and the studio became his home away from home. And most of his artists had been picked up during the Depression. It was great for Walt because everybody was out of work and everybody needed something to do with themselves, and so a lot of really talented artists became animators. But he viewed his artists as sons, and he was at the studio more often than he was at his home. A biographer stated... His obsession with family, family entertainment, family values, a family atmosphere in his studio stemmed from his childhood insecurities. He led his team by leading them all to believe, as he did, that their work was a calling, a mission, almost a religion. He once said, I love Mickey Mouse more than I love any woman I've ever met. And Lily called herself a mouse widow. That's a little disturbing. (laughs) Mickey, what are you doing? When people would say that Walt was a genius, Lily would respond, yeah, will you try living with one? But when she had a miscarriage, Disney had what he called a hell of a breakdown. Hell of a all one word. And they took their first ever vacation. A great American road trip? Yes, they went across the country. Fantastic. Yes. And he came back revitalized and pitched Snow White. It's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Now, in the 20s, Cavalier says, Disney met a stranger on a train who was very interested to hear that he produced motion pictures. But when Disney told him he made cartoons, the man lost interest. This is the kind of attitude that riled Disney and drove him, for a while at least, to make something grown up, serious, and respected. Now, Snow White was, like, lambasted in the press. It was called Disney's Folly throughout its production because it continually went over budget. It was continually delayed. It was... A 90-minute cartoon. Who would ever watch that? It was all going to be in color. Insane. All sound. Just preposterous. And Disney's perfectionism did stymie work. We sometimes would take a whole day to draw a close-up of Snow White, Robert Givens, a former animator, told PBS. That's how intricate the drawing was. But the movie premiered on December 21st, 1931, and it made $8 million domestically, which was the most of any film to date. And it got a ton of Oscars. It got eight. Well, well it got one. It and got seven little ones. And it was an honorary Oscar presented yes. by Shirley Temple. Well, it's course. adorable. Adorable. It's adorable. But Walt was always kind of miffed that he wasn't nominated for a real Oscar because, of course, he was. Now, he was trying to recapture some of this critical acclaim he had seen with Snow White. And he had been through Pinocchio at this point, which was not well received. Um, He'd done Fantasia, done the Silly Symphonies. Nothing was hitting the way that Snow White had. And so he was going to do Bambi. And it was going to be beautiful. And it was supposed to kind of flesh out his character, you know, flesh out the studio's capability. And it's visually striking. If you go back and look at it now, it's beautiful. It's very painterly, super realistic movement, gorgeous color. 
but traumatic. For many children, including Walt's own daughter. Uh, I mean, AFI's top villain was the man from Bambi. That guy in particular had a rough time with the movie. Whoever made that list like has some serious trauma. And Walt's daughter, Diane, was very unhappy and asked why Bambi's mother had to die. And he told her, life is composed of lights and shadows, and we would be untruthful, insincere, and saccharine if we tried to pretend there were no shadows. Cut to Walt pretending that there are no shadows. That's heavy, Walt, to tell your daughter. Mm-hmm. But we can't have a king without a kingdom. Right. And we said he was the king of television? Yeah. Kinda? Yeah, but we all know there's a kingdom coming. On earth as there is in heaven? Yes. One could say. Well, for Walt, television was a means to an end. He basically got into television to finance his idea for a theme park. And he did the same thing with his movies. Dumbo was made to finance other movies. Like it was done cheap, quick. Kind of just to make payroll, to make really. Money, yeah. And so he could do a good one. Yeah. That's what he thought. That's his. It's and he's so miffed when Dumbo got good press. He was so mad. But it made money. It did what he wanted it to do. Go watch it. Go watch the drunk Dumbo scene and be like, what the fuck is happening? Like we did. By accident with our kid. But he even, like, Zorro, the TV series Zorro was created for this reason. It was just a way to get through. But he tried a few anthology or kind of, like, variety shows, which were very widely popular. They were on America Was Watching Them. One critic even said, Walt Disney can take over television anytime he liked. So then he pitched this other anthology idea to NBC and CBS, but they both turned him down. It was going to be called Disneyland. And it would focus on the themed lands in this perspective park he was cooking up. Each week, one of them would, you know, be the primary focus. But if they wanted to air this program, there was a condition. They were going to have to invest in the park. Who would agree to that? That's ABC. A well, they bought them later. <laughs> yeah. ABC was kind of like the, the ugliest of the three sisters in the major broadcasting networks. And they needed to show as much as Walt needed a backer. He would later say, ABC needed the television show so damn bad that they bought an amusement park. And they basically footed 35% of the cost for the park. That is crazy. Which is why on every ABC series, there's an episode where they go to Disneyland. Wonderful. I think a full house. Isn't that? Uh, yeah, of course. Michelle rubs the magic lamp and gets the genie and gets the wishes. And then she used to be queen for the day. And then her sisters are all upset with her because she's being a brat. And then she learns a lesson and there's music. I thought that was just every episode. The end part, yeah. Okay, cool. So each segment, as I said, was going to focus on one of these themed lands. And there was fantasy land, which is like fairy tales. And that's where the castle is. And there's adventure land. And that's your pirates of the Caribbean. You're... You know, adventure, your adventure, right? And your then, adventure, it's like your adventure in not America, right? Because American adventure happens in Frontierland, Westerns, yes. And then there's Tomorrowland, which is the future. The future. Now, the first of the episodes to air on ABC was about Frontierland or centered on Frontierland, and it was a shocking success. It premiered in December of 1954. Davy, Davy Crockett, King, King of, of the, the Wild, wild frontier. frontier, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, <laughs> killed himself a bar when he was only three. Davy. <laughs> anyway, 
I liked it when I was a kid. But he did start with one of those characters that was like kind of a real person that had developed its own tall tale version. Oh, much to Davy Crockett's chagrin, I should say. This happened in his lifetime, which I can't even imagine. (laughs) Seems like hell. But the TV show, according to a former Imagineer, Sklara, turned him into an icon. There was such public trust in Walt because of that show. People thought, I'd buy a used car from this man. And Davy Crockett's motto, first be sure you're right, then go ahead, really kind of embodied the Cold War feeling in America. Except we were like, we know we're right, go ahead. Well, like if you're fact-checking that, it's going to take a while. Like, (laughs) I don't really think there's a thorough process in place. But one of the great things about his shows, like I just remember watching on like Vault Disney. I loved Vault Disney. It was my jam. And we definitely watched some of this on YouTube. In the past week was like the segments where Walt would like come out and he would present a cartoon or he would talk about like technical aspects of things or talk about a new ride they were building in the park or something like that. And he had such a personality and such a persona. But it wasn't just a name. I mean, he was like he was his own character. Absolutely. And that character kind of accidentally became Uncle Walt. It was kind of called Uncle Walt. Calling Mr. Hyde, but nice. Right. And it was an image that was carefully crafted and carefully maintained in about two-thirds fiction. But Walt knew and recognized the importance of having this persona. For example, he was a chain smoker. He'd eventually die of lung cancer. But all of his photos were retouched to take out his lucky strike. So that's why his hands are always like... <laughs> He's always holding two fingers pointing at nothing. I was thinking, remember in the statue at Disney World, he's pointing? He's smoking. (laughs) He's smoking. He's tote smoking. (laughs) He's just smoking. Even like his signature was created by his animators. Will Eisner. That'll do it. And he once said, I'm not Walt Disney. I do a lot of things Walt Disney wouldn't do. Walt Disney doesn't smoke. I smoke. Walt Disney doesn't drink. I drink. Walt Disney doesn't cat around. I cat around. So the 10-year anniversary video where he has, like, the, the girl that's, like, Miss Tentennial or whatever. Yeah. And he's, like... It's so creeper. It's so he's creeper. Like, I love Walt Disney. It's so creeper. He's, like, oh, this park was built when you... You, you must have been eight years old when it opened 10 years ago, huh? Mm-hmm. And she's, like, oh, I was 10, actually. And he's, like, oh. All right. Really? Definitely. Good to know. And Jacob and I just, like, froze. We're, like... Ew. Also, every old guy should write that down. Really good age check. Like, can I get you to sign here as the next step? Can I see some ID? You're like, can you at least independently do the math you need to fake this? Like, But it was a, a facade that didn't always hold up. Bill Walsh said, you were being patted on the head by this kindly old uncle who wanted you to be happy and have a nice warm lunch when you suddenly realized you were talking to Attila the Hunt. Neil Gabler, a biographer who probably wrote the most authoritative biography of Disney, said of his experience researching, as I vicariously lived Walt's life, I was surprised by his obsessiveness, which is so at odds with the media image of genial Uncle Walt. Disney was, from virtually the time he was a teenager, a man possessed by a vision, a man who believed that he could ameliorate the hurts that he felt he had suffered by constructing a more perfect world and then inhabiting it. I was surprised, too, by the price he paid for his obsessiveness, the loneliness, the mental anguish, and the disappointments. He was anything but the happy, simple man we think of when we think of Walt Disney. So with this in mind, let's look at Disneyland. The ultimate 
the ultimate in the fake authentic or the authentic fake. I'm not sure which one it is. And that's the point. Is there reality? Who knows? This is America. Anything is possible. Ugh. We just need truthiness. Yeah. It just needs to feel true, man. So Disneyland opened on July 17th of 1955. It took 12 months to construct. How is that possible? I don't know. And you know the whole time he's like, why is it taking so long? And it cost $17 million. Now, it is described by Fantasyland author Kurt Anderson thusly. It was a happy and hedonistic, but not remotely countercultural place. A synthesis of confabulated small towns and television. A manufactured city on a hill, inspired by P.T. Barnum and Buffalo Bill, devoted to weaving together reality and fiction. It was Disneyland. And ain't that the truth? Now, Walt thought that the post-war amusement parks were seedy affairs, and he said they were so, quote, honky-tonk, with a lot of questionable characters running around and not too safe. They're not well-kept. I want to have a place that's as clean as anything could ever be, and all the people in it are first-class citizens. So let's raise those prices. <laughs> mm-hmm. Disney welcomed people to his utopia by saying, To all that come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here, age relives the fond memories of the past, and here youth may savor the challenge and the promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, and with hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. And it was such a revolutionary place. It was just like all-encompassing. Right. I mean, you know, nowadays... You know, you, you can go to Comic-Con, you can see people dressed in costumes, and you can go to all the different kind of theme parks, and go to Wizarding World of Harry Potter, you can go to... Rainforest Cafe. Even Yeah, even places like that, and see these immersive, themed environments, but there was nothing like this to this degree before. No, and he knew it was special. He just was sure he was on to something. So it provided like this very idealized version of American culture that was an amalgamation of kind of the tidy version of it we'd seen on television, what we wanted to believe, and maybe some history. Just a little. Is this some history? No, it was not meant to be a reconstruction of history, but it was stylized and modified to send a message that conveyed cultural values and a kind of idealism that Disney wished to present to the world. His goal was ultimately to entertain, and the strategy of theming areas was set forth so that people could see the connections between history and the future, and it was all American, and it created this, this palette for possibility, I guess. He didn't want the public to see the world that they lived in when they were in the park. He wanted them to feel like they were stepping into a different world. Kurt Anderson comments on Main Street, USA, which is what he calls the most naturalistic of the lands, an old-fashioned town center with real shopkeepers selling real merchandise. It was Disney's single most world-changing 3D fiction of all. It was more or less a replica of Marceline, Missouri, the small town where he'd grown up. Indeed, an amazing dream version of the sort of place where only decades earlier, three-quarters of Americans had lived and shopped. It wasn't just a story or a show about the good old days. It practically was the good old days. Once di- disbelief approached complete suspension, the illusion was brilliantly reinforced by design tricks, such as forced perspectives. Man, they could use some forced perspectives. In each pseudo-19th century building, each story was slightly smaller than the one below it, which made the streetscape both friendlier and grander than the real thing. 
Now, Marty Sklara, who was employed with Disney, says that once the marketing team announced a campaign to promote Disney parks as escapism, another employee got upset. He said, it's not about escapism at all. It's about reassurance that things can be done right. And to that end, when he was 21 years old, Sklara was hired by Walt to produce a Main Street newspaper about a month before the park opened. Two weeks after I went to work, I had to present the concept to Walt, he says. At first, I was amazed that he had the time for this little thing that was going to be sold for 10 cents. But I soon realized that having a paper was part of the story for Walt. At the turn of the century, every town had at least one, and for him, Main Street was a real place. Disney set out to create a park that combined American ideals with security and order in a world that was changing rapidly. The park was well-maintained, it had great service, and provided an atmosphere of order and control. Disneyland provided a respite in the competition of daily American life, as well as the stresses of living through the Cold War world. Disney promoted democracy, innovation, and Americanism that provided a sense of hope in an insecure world. But the connection to American values was less than hypothetical. Because who was the host on the day that the park opened? <laughs> Dateline, Disneyland, ABC special? Um, the movie star and cowboy Ronald Reagan. Yeah, it was before he ever became the governor, ever became the president. He's there, opening day. Because synergy. He's a big star. Because synergy. For our episode. <laughs> O'Hagan says, Disney felt he was giving America a better version of itself. What he created was a new way of thinking about life and dreaming of a kind of American Eden. Bill Walsh wrote in a 1953 pamphlet advertising what Disneyland would be. Disneyland will be based upon and dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. There's that phrase again. And will be uniquely equipped to dramatize these dreams and facts and send them forth as the source of courage and inspiration to all the world. It will be filled with the accomplishments, the joys, and the hopes of the world we live in. And it will remind us and show us how to make those wonders part of our own lives. And yeah, it, sure. It reflected history, but it was Some of it. definitely an idealized history in that all the bad parts were omitted. Well, of course. It has to be squeaky clean. I mean, he's even airbrushing the cigarettes out of right? his hands. So depression, strikes, squalor in which immigrants lived, lynchings, wars, mass protest, Indians, labor wars, and disenfranchisement of black people were all scrubbed. Ah, well, that's going to be a theme. <laughs> yeah. It was created for middle-class white people, and it reflected that set of ideals, preconceptions, and beliefs. Now, Walt always said that there could only be one Disneyland, but he was persuaded that, of course, there could be a Disney world. Semantics. And maybe we could put it in Florida. You know, he learned his lesson from California, where he hadn't bought enough land, and you know, right around Disneyland, it all got bought up and turned into this just sprawling morass yes of capitalism super american so he bought huge piece of land of orange grove to turn into disney world now life said the new site is in florida but the air is pure old disney who else could be responsible for this carefully crafted vision of the american past the intricate, hokey, hugely expensive assemblage of lives and places that never were. The park embodied the business-like use of fantasy and the no-nonsense approach to nonsense. Walt always had these kind of World's Fair ideas, you know, for his parks. One of those was, of course, Epcot, which stands for the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And he envisioned this being an actual fully functional community with 20,000 residents. 
designed to showcase American industry and technology. In Disney's own words, Epcot will always be a showcase to the world the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. He even sought funding in the 60s from the new Department of Housing and Urban Development. Now later, of course, Epcot was opened with a permanent World's Fair next to it. Now it definitely did not kind of live up to Walt's original idea. It was very downsized. And when Roy Disney, who was running the company at the time after his brother's death, was asked about why it did not reach Walt's vision, he said, well, Walt's dead. Damn, bro. But now Walt was looking towards the future with Epcot. He was looking towards the future with Tomorrowland with some of his innovations in sound and movies and technology and animatronics and effects. But he was always had an eye on the past, too. So in 1956, right after Disneyland opened, he pitched Liberty Street. And this is going to be in Disney World. Yes. What we now call like the Magic Kingdom. It was going to be in Frontierland. Now, he wanted to incorporate this turn-of-the-century Missouri, who's very, very hung up on that, one might say. Tall Tales, which Disney did produce a lot of shorts and stuff about the Tall Tales. He did a Pecosville. He did a Paul Bunyan, as we've mentioned. Casey the Bat. Yes. Lots of Tall Tales. Very fond of them. And he also wanted to include Tales of America's creation, our origin story, our creation myth. Gotta have the origin story. Gotta have it. It's gonna be America's Eden. So he wanted to... Quote from his pitch, excitingly dramatize the events of the Revolutionary War period and present them in such a way as to give us a better personal understanding and pride in the American way of life. Now, they were working on Johnny Tremaine at the time. Love that book when I was a kid. So it seems like that was probably at the forefront of his mind. And, you know, I already have all this shit lying around. We might as well hang it up, trot it out, tart it up. Tart it up. Tart it up. And make it pretty. Now, he had this frequently expressed belief that America needed to be more aware and grateful for its heritage. Now, in 1957, a booklet on the topic discusses the expansion, and it says, Liberty Street is the result of a personal philosophy that Walt Disney has long shared with many other Americans. It is a belief that we as Americans often fail to comprehend the tremendous significance of our heritage as related to our personal lives and the growth and prosperity of our country. Now, it was going to have working 18th century shops, like a glass blower. That was going to be a big thing, he was sure. And it wouldn't require any guests to purchase a ticket. It's just included in the price of admission. There's going to be a silversmith. And in the back of all these working shops, there are going to be windows into dioramas featuring major scenes from American history. There was going to be a Liberty Hall where guests would enter the area's keynote attraction through a central lobby featuring dioramas of scenes from the Revolutionary War. Visitors would enter two theatrical attractions, the Hall of Presidents or the Hall of the Declaration of Independence. Are you so mad right now? Yes, this would be my jam. I'd be there with my t-shirt on every day, like different founding father. Maybe I'd just have a t-shirt with each president printed on it and stop at 44. But anyway, there'd be wooden pews inside the 500-seat hall of the Declaration of Independence and lit by 13 stars set into the ceiling. Guests would witness the stirring and dramatic story of the birth of the United States. Three scenes based on famous paintings would honor the Declaration of Independence by depicting the framing, signing, and proclaiming of the document that Disneyland's promotional booklet lauded as the most important 
state paper ever written. Screw the Magna Carta. Yeah, really. Screw it. Who gives a shit about the Magna Carta? We wouldn't Carta? have America without the Magna Carta. We wouldn't have America without Crazy George. But anyway, so there was going to be these shadow boxes in the in the hall that would be revealed as curtains were pulled back throughout the exhibition. There would be three scenes in sequence based on a painting, but presented in life-size three-dimensional tableau. And they were going to have animatronics set in gilded frames, but designed in forced perspective, giving guests an experience rather than a show. So they were like taking these like Trumbold paintings and oh, literally. turning them into life, literally. literally. The guests would witness Benjamin Franklin and John Adams consulting with Thomas Jefferson as seen in J.L.G. Ferris, the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. The signing would be staged to resemble the Trumbull painting, which hangs in the rotunda. Finally, guests would see the proclamation and signing as depicted in Henry Mosler's The Ringing of the Liberty Bell. There was also going to be a Hall of Presidents. Walt of course. stayed hung up on the Hall of Presidents. Well, it got made. It got made, but it was like, oh my God, such a thing. He talked about it forever. Presidential robots. Why, Disney? Why? What if they come to life? Sentience. Do you really want, does anyone want that? But yes, he always was very excited about the prospect of really bringing American history to life. And that idea did not, did not die with Disney. So we've been talking about, you know, this idea of what America is and, and how, you know, it really started with these tall tales and who different people that have come to be Americans or were Americans saw themselves or the heroes they invented. And then what Disney saw as America and other tycoons and people like that, leaders of industry like Ford and, all that. And so, of course, Disney has this idea of America that he's kind of pushing on us. And you can say, oh, you're just reading into it. Who would say that? One, one could say that. Until you realize that in the early 90s, they tried to literally make Disney's America. Apostrophe S. <laughs> All right, Miss, Miss Grammar Nazi. That, what, what is an apostrophe it's, it's S means It's possessive. It's possessive. <laughs> Disney is quite possessive of America. Now their promo material. Every day a diverse and unlikely society made up of every culture and race on earth is working together to build a great nation. Disney's America celebrates these qualities which have always been the source of our strength and the beacon of hope to people everywhere. Now their motto was recall the past, live the present, dream the future. Ooh. And the logo is like a mighty eagle. Mm-hmm. And it's a Disney's apostrophe S. America over an American flag. Yeah! And everyone got a capitalism boner. Free market! But Americana is what Disney does best. It's what mm-hmm. they've been doing since the beginning. So why not do a whole damn park around it? So the name, hilarious. Yes. But Disney's America will allow guests to celebrate the diversity of the nation the plurality and conflict that has defined the American mm. character. Mm. So let us let us imagine this park exists. Are you going to be an Imagineer? Yes. Yay! First, we would enter the Crossroads, USA, themed about 1800 to 1850. That's broad. It is. Okay. Integrated into the entrance would be a resort hotel, mm. lodging and hustle and bustle of a themed 19th century inn, 
And this was the gateway to the nine territories of Disney's America. Now you could go one way and you can go to Native America. Ooh, that sounds racist. Mm, Tell me more. (laughs) Which would feature an authentic Powhatan village. Oh, that just happens to be the tribe of which Pocahontas was a member. Wow, you're right. And this was 1993. That just happens to be two years before Pocahontas had its theatrical release. I'm really doing all this from memory, guys. That's amazing. It's like they thought they might be able to integrate. Synergy. And, of course, Synergy. they had the big ride in this area. A ride. Yeah, it was going to be the Lewis and Clark Raft Expedition. They know that Sacagawea is a different person, right? Yeah, but they were going to mix that in, don't worry. <laughs> There's going to be like, sisters, hey soul sister. They said the life of America's first inhabitants, their accord with the environment, Mm. and the timeless work of art they created before European colonization. Oh, oh, like, you know, were they painting with all the colors of the wind? Of course. By the way, in case you don't know, Michael Eisner was the head of Disney around this time. I know. I know you know. (laughs) And he was all about building some parks. So there's all kind of crazy park ideas floating around that are super fun to read about. They're called Neverworlds or uh, Neverlands. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of them get incorporated into Disney California, like some of this, you'll see. Um, so he had toured Colonial Williamsburg, mm. and Pocahontas was in development, so he was really excited about this park. Now, they were going to have President Square. Which is going to be animatronic robot presidents that bring you coffee. <laughs> Kind of. Okay. That would be your dream. (laughs) Then there would be a Civil War fort. What? Really? You're bringing this up? You're bringing this up? Blows my mind. So within the fort, there would be a circle vision film of a Civil War battlefield area. Have you seen the photos from the Battle of Antietam? Oh, yeah. God, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea, Michael Eisner. And the area around the fort would host Civil War battle reenactments. And don't worry, we're going to have those exciting fireworks shows at night because outside of the Civil War fort, there would be a thrilling nighttime spectacular, an ironclad battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack. Holy Jesus, this is such a bad idea, Michael Eisner. I never thought I'd say this. I never thought I'd say that Disney's America was a bad idea. You know we'd be the first people to sign up. Oh, but we would be so horrified. We'd and I like, love oh it. Oh my God. And buy so much shit in the gift shop. Like we would. So a few other sections took place kind of 1870 and 1930. There was the We the People. That was kind of looked like Ellis Island. Oh, God, they're going to fuck this up. They were going to attempt to describe the immigrant experience mm-hmm. with Muppets. Fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. And the horse you rode in on. No. The next, the next territory would be Enterprise. The factory town of Enterprise plays host to inventions and the innovation spawned by the ingenuity and candy spirit that catapulted America to the forefront of industry. Now, this is going to have another big ride called the Industrial Revolution. Oh, oh, no. Okay, is it a loom that you can lose an arm in? No, let's just say Joe Magarak would be happy with this ride. Were you going to like end up in a vault of steel at the end? You twist in and around a turn-of-the-century steel mill, ending with an escape from a glowing vat of molten metal. And every Tuesday, someone sacrificed to the metal to make the steel stronger. That's right. Yay! Later, Eisner would say in his memoir. (laughs) (laughs) On second thought is the name of it. 
<laughs> At least the chapter. Maybe this ride would trivialize and even demean the attempt to portray the, st- portray the stale mill realistically. Which you could apply to the whole damn park. <laughs> now they also had Victory Fields, which was in a World War II military <coughs> airfield. There wasn't like clear kind of idea of what the ride would be, but probably something like Soren. Like a flight simulation. Like a flight simulator kind okay. of thing. Because this idea was the next, this and the next idea were really turned into Disney California. Because mm-hmm. the other one was like a state fair, mm. like a boardwalk kind of thing. And then you would have a family farm. From Marceline, Missouri. I guess. I don't know. It wasn't really clearly defined. It's the one that has like the least definition. It's like it's a farm. That's it. Cool. So they really get close to making this. They had all the initial plans. Where were they going to put out. this? Virginia. Oh, God. They had optioned 3,000 acres of land. And they were going to do like in Florida where they'd use like half of it and then create a green belt, use some for conservation, and save some for future development. Now, I remember when this came out because there was all this controversy about it being built. On a Civil War battlefield. On a Civil War battlefield. Oh, my gosh. Now, the Washington Post reported that the site was adjacent to 13 historic towns, 16 Civil War battle sites, in 17 historic districts. Define adjacent. So it was five miles from the Manassas battlefield. Mm-hmm. And yet. Now there were concerns about how slavery would be depicted, especially due to a serious foot-in-the-mouth moment. Oh. Now Bob Weiss, a senior vice president of the, and the park's creative director, said to a full room of reporters... No. Bob, I'm going to stop you before you even say, like... How can you do a park in America and not talk about slavery? The park will deal with the highs and lows. We want to make you feel what it was like to be a slave and what it was like to escape through the Underground Railroad. Bob Weiss, you failed. You failed, Bob Weiss. And meanwhile, the the African-American Heritage Museum is, like, sitting there with his arms crossed looking at it, like... looking at it across the Hudson, like, no... So there's a huge cadre of historians that were very opposed to the idea of Disney America. Disney's America. Sorry. The leader of this effort was Richard Moe, who was president of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And there was a New York Times editorial that said, Putting a theme park there, at the site, degrades a scenic and historic resource for a project that can be built elsewhere. As for parents who want to give their children history, let them like generations before them, make the trip to Prince William County. Let them sit still at Manassas and listen to the presence of the dead. Okay, suddenly the Industrial Revolution roller coaster sounds like so much fun. <laughs> like when you put it like that. So David McCullough got involved. David McCullough of like all the books? Of like 1776. Okay, I'm familiar. Uh, he called it a commercial blitzkrieg by the Panzer Division of Developers. Ooh. He said, we have so little that's authentic and real. Yeah, it's, that's true. It's irrational, illogical, and enormously detrimental to attempt to create synthetic history by destroying real history. What real history? The battlefield. Yeah. Which they were five miles from. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going to parse that. Okay. Well, so let's parse that. So what do you think happened to the sacred land? Strip mall. Well, the land had already been zoned for development. And... Guess what it is now? A strip mall. Suburbs. And those famed historians, well, they weren't so opposed to the park and its terrible twisting depiction of America. 
as long as it was built somewhere else. And they even agreed with Eisner to support the park if it was at another site. Oh my god. So many, many, many factors went into the park not being developed. But some of that public outcry did play a component. So Disney's America is mostly one for the history books. But (laughs) the story of Disney's America is as American as Disney and apple pie. Boysenberry pie. You're right. So Disney did have a real impact on America, even though America continually rejected his ideas like Liberty Street and Disney's America. For example, in 1968, he ran a candidate for president. He ran for president? No, one of his creations did. Vote for me. (laughs) I declare that I'm going to run for present president of the United States of America. I am Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh? Winnie the Pooh. Fantastic. Now, there are several problems with this. Not least of which is that Pooh may not be an American citizen. I want to see his birth certificate. That's oh, all I'm saying. Yeah. Long farm. So the Tomorrowland stage was taken over in 1968, which was a really rough year for politics. I can't believe we went political in 1968. You mean the Democratic National Convention? Where the tanks were completely. And the National Guard being called out? And Bobby Kennedy being shot. And there was just a whole host of problems. We can make this fun. We're Disney. We make everything fun. God damn it. Give me another whiskey. So it took over the Tomorrowland stage and staged a political musical convention. And it was performed alongside talent like Peggy Lee, a comedian Rich Little, and puppeteer Sherry Lewis of Lamb Chop fame. So Pooh lost, but... Hubert Humphrey admitted to reporters that the bear made more sense than any other candidate. But that didn't stop Pooh. Ever resilient, the little fella tried again in 1972, and he was nominated to run on the children's ticket. Oh, well, that's good. Now, drawings were held at Sears, Roebuck, and company stores across America, and one child was selected from each of the 50 states and promptly packed up and sent off to join the other delegates at Walt Disney World. For the convention? For the convention. They nominated Pooh in the forecourt of Cinderella's castle, and then he headed off to Chicago that July to join in the festivities associated with the Democratic National Convention. Again, the previous election cycle had seen tanks deployed, but Winnie the Pooh's going to Chicago. Who thought this was a good idea? Maybe you can take on a heffalump and a woozle. And a woozle. Can take on a hippie. So what did Pooh want to do as president? It's a very important question. I'm sure something with honey. Go to your thoughtful spot. Okay. You there? Honey. He was going to put honey in every pot. Ah, look at that. And he stressed his battle to lick the high price of ice cream. Oh, thank you. Hot fudge sundaes every Monday. And banning spankings. Oh, I'm glad he's on the corporal punishment ticket. And that, according to the press, rounded out his mostly pun-based proposals. Oh, I know there are more puns. Give them to oh, me. Oh, you want them? Give them to me. So first of all, you need to know that his press secretary was Tigger. That seems like a terrible it idea. It was a really bad, really bad idea. Probably the worst person for the job other than Piglet. And his political advisor, Owl? Eeyore. 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 Thanks for noticing me, Eeyore. Eeyore's going to drop some bombs. So the media speculated about who might get Pooh's vice presidential bid. 
Now, Tigger and Eeyore were favorites because they were already part of the operation, but Tigger claimed that Owl is on the inside track because the learned bird appeals to both left and right wingers. Wingers. No, I refuse. (laughs) The the political rallies were held up and down the West Coast. Marching bands, free balloons, pictures, buttons, postcards. There are no reports of the FEC monitoring any of this activity. Was the National Guard called in? No, but on the 21st through the 23rd, a Tigger Tape Parade. Oh, God, it's too much. (laughs) There's too many puns. Was held daily at Disneyland. And three times a day, the Pooh Review was presented on the Tomorrowland stage. Now, Pooh was not. Alas, elected president. But there were rumors that he was seen near Richard Nixon. No. Who was at Disneyland before he walked out and gave the famous I'm not a crook speech. Bullshit. Was he really? Now I'm going, it was at Disneyland, Disney World, Disneyland, Disney World. At a Disney park before he did that? Yeah. So maybe Pooh talked him into giving that speech? I'm not a crook, he says, but he was, and it was sad for so everyone. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And hilarious. And amazing. But Disney really did have a lot of political clout. He did. He I mean, we kind of did. mentioned some of the things he did in World War Two. Well, during World War Two, the studio was requisitioned as a base for anti-aircraft troops. And Walt decided that he was going to throw himself into making training and propaganda films. By 1942, over 93% of Disney productions were related to the government contracts he'd received. And he produced shorts for various departments. For example, he did Food Will Win the War for the Department of Agriculture. And he did Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Firing Line to educate housewives on how household waste could be recycled for use on the battlefront. He also designed Mickey Mouse gas masks for children and presented them to Major General William Porter in Washington in 1942. Photos of those kids in the masks are so creepy. They are like Doctor Who gas mask kid creepy. But it was intended to make children feel less scared if they needed to use their gas mask for a noble cause, I'll say. No, for sure. Super creepy. In addition to this, he made insignia for tanks and aircraft and also designed unit patches for the military. Now, this gave way to a very personal brush with the Cold War for the Disney brand. The day when Nikita Khrushchev was told he could not go to Disney, Disneyland. That's going to piss a Russian off. Well, you tell a Russian that there is the happiest place on Earth, and they're like, do you just squeeze potatoes and vodka come out? No, there's a mouse. And mouse eats socks, but he's other people's socks. No, he talks. He's talking mouse's bullshit. There is a parade. A parade with a ticker tape parade. It's ticker. I say parade and ticker tape all time with this joke. It's just how I talk. Anyway, the date is September nineteenth, nineteen fifty-nine. Khrushchev is in America. He is going to visit Dwight Eisenhower. They're going to talk about how cold the war is, or something. But he also decided he'd like to visit Hollywood. He was taken to the Los Angeles Town Hall where Spiros Viskurnas, a movie producer, introduced him to a crowd. But he mentioned this comment that Khrushchev had made about mm, burying capitalism, which he took offense to. He basically was like, challenge accepted, you red-ass motherfucker. And Khrushchev said 
If you want an arms race, very well. We accept the challenge. As for the output of rockets, well, they are on the assembly line. This is the most serious question. It is one of life or death, ladies and gentlemen. One of war and peace. And then there was like this thing that was obviously stuck in his crawl that he just couldn't get out of his head. Now, before we talk about this, you need to know. He wanted to go to Disneyland. He wanted to go to Disneyland. He wanted to go to Disneyland. And he had been informed that there were too many people at the park and they were not going to be able to provide adequate security for him. And they're going to close it down for you commie bastard. Basically. Basically. Walt would roll over in his grave. He wasn't dead yet. Walt just said no. And so he says to this crowd of people, and they say, I very much like to go see Disneyland, but then we cannot guarantee security, they say. Then what must I do? Commit suicide? What is it? Is there an epidemic of cholera or something? Oh, the gangsters have taken hold of the place and they can destroy me? He's really angry. What must I do? Commit suicide? So Disney almost started a nuclear war <laughs> by pissing him off. This is basically what you're telling me. Yes. Now, beyond that, beyond the propaganda films, he also had another huge milestone in American politics. Right. He helped produce the I Like Ike, or Ike to Washington, as it's officially known, television spot. It's a black and white animated cartoon television commercial to help support Eisenhower's candidacy. And this was the first time that they'd ever used commercials. Right. Now, Eisenhower won the nomination for the Republican Party in July of 1952, and his handlers were very worried because he had a very wooden appearance when giving his stump speeches. He was a fucking general. But his friend, Ben Duffy, who was an ad executive, explained to him that a TV campaign could really convey his warmth and integrity. And Ike replied, you're telling me things I ought to have been told from the start that nobody told me. Rosser Reeves, who was reportedly the model for Don Draper, said in the 1980s when he was interviewed about it, that he considered Eisenhower to be a singularly inept speaker. Oh, well, that's a compliment. Yeah. And so he said, you know, this thing the candidates have been doing for the past few years where they buy like an hour or a half hour of TV time and they just stand up there and give a speech. That's not for you, he says to the man who oversaw D-Day. <laughs> Ike had, quote, great qualms about this idea of doing a TV campaign. But Reeves says to him, you're going to do the speech. What if we cut the speech to one minute? And I love that they convince him to like make these little kind of fake man-on-the-street interview commercials where they are planned questions, planned answers. He's got makeup on. He's all fixed. He didn't do that Nixon thing where he was scared of makeup. And these aired, but they had nothing on the popularity of what Disney came up with for his old friend, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, Adlai Stevenson's executive director, George Ball, warned, Ike's people were about to merchandise him on TV spots as if he were soap, hair tonic, or bubblegum. Stevenson declared that Eisenhower's commercials were destined to backfire, saying, this isn't a soap opera, this isn't ivory soap versus Palmolive, but... By the end of the campaign, there were one-minute Stevenson spots and even jingles. But the Eisenhower campaign ad that really took hold was this animated Disney short. And the song was wildly popular as well. So you get the, like, I like Ike thing. Mm-hmm. And it aired in more markets than anything else they'd done and really paved the way for, like, the merchandising and the commercials that we're all tortured with 
to this day. I hate, hate political ads. But the two men really did have a warm relationship and a mutual respect for one another that lasted for years. So after the campaign ended, Roy wrote a short letter to the manager saying that we were all very pleased with the result of the election. And that was kind of that on that chapter. But eventually, in 1957, Walt was selected to receive the Milestone Award from the Screen Producers Guild. And Eisenhower, still in the White House, wrote him to congratulate him on this achievement. Ike wrote, Your genius as a creator of folklore has long been recognized by leaders of every field of human endeavor, including the most discerning body of critics, the children of this land, and all lands. Now I am glad to express what I have long felt, a deep appreciation for your skill and the ways you have applied it in many worthy causes. As an artist, your work has helped reveal our country and our world, and the world to all of us. As a man, your sympathetic attitude toward life has helped children develop a clean and cheerful view of humanity with all its frailties and all its possibilities for good. Now, eventually, Eisenhower did visit Disney World, and there are some very iconic photos of him. These were his grandkids. Yes, it was adorable. And he, like, made it like, I'm just here for the kids. But at one point, like, the steamship Mark Twain came down the river, and he was like, oh, boy, Mamie. Like, he's literally quoted as saying, oh, boy, Mamie. So cute. Look at that. Disney would later write to Eisenhower asking for an autograph on his copy of Eisenhower's new book and asking him to autograph this photo of the two of them together. He says, may I also take this opportunity to thank you for your part in the Freedoms Foundation presentation. He'd been presented the George Washington Award by Eisenhower's organization. With all the awards I have received during my 40 years in Hollywood, this is the only one I have received just for being an American, a heritage we all take too much for granted. It was a real honor to have you make the presentation. And now one more favor. Would you mind inscribing the enclosed photograph taken at the Freedom Luncheon? With the added touch of your inscription to this picture, I am hoping I may be able to better impress my grandchildren. Now, at the presentation, Eisenhower had said that Disney was an ambassador of freedom for the United States of America. His educational wisdom and patriotic dedication in advancing the concept of freedom under God for his unfailing professional devotion to things which matter most, human dignity and personal responsibility, for his masterful, creative leadership and communicating the hopes and aspiration of our free society to the far corners of the planet. And upon Disney's death, Eisenhower released a public statement. To the many tens of millions, Walt Disney brought great cheer and happy hours with entertainment that lightened their hearts and refreshed their minds. The Americans of all ages and all walks of life, he was unique. Children loved his characters and his portrayal of them. Parents honored him and were obliged to him for his far-reaching aid in the sensible upbringing of families. Grandparents saluted him as a genius with films that were messages of fun and education and character building. His appeal and his influence were universal, not restricted to this land alone, for he touched a common chord in all humanity. We shall not soon see his like again, fortunately. All he stood for will live on in the memory of those who were privileged to know him in person or in his products. His work will endure so long as men and women and children retain a sense of wonder, a need for bright laughter, a love of the clean and decent. Consequently, Walt Disney's name and his creations will endure through generations. In honoring him, we salute an American who belongs to the world. 
Yeah, I mean, he really did take his idea of America and export it. Well, it really did coincide with Eisenhower's as well. They were both like these paragons of the 50s. Oh, definitely. You know, they really did define the American character during that era, but social change was coming so fast. So fast. And so, according to Susan Douglas, who's a media historian, when she was speaking with PBS, The American Experience, Disney, she said that Disney's vision of America was very small town, wholesome, Midwestern, where everybody is moral and upstanding, where the United States has the best values in the world. It's a very white view. There is no class conflict, no racial conflict. Girls stay in their place. But it is also this very idealized and in the end fake view of America. Disney held up a false mirror. He ignored divisions and sought to keep the marginalized people in their place. Selling a particular image of America back to itself during the Cold War was profitable. Whether it was the Musketeer or Davy Crockett, it's flattering. He liked thinking that we had these wonderful, selfless, altruistic ideals, that we lived in a conflict-free country where nobody was held down. But there's some real problems in believing that. It deludes you into thinking there are not problems, into thinking these are not problems that you need to confront. It deludes you into thinking that you're a better country than you are. Even with the idealized idea of the 1950s and what America would become post-war, leader in the rest of the world, even from the very get-go, you had trouble brewing. You had McCarthyism. In the 1950s, it wasn't crazy to worry that there might be communist aggression or Soviet espionage in the U.S. But this conspiracist mindset set in. And like we've talked about before, once that a little kernel of truth might be there, then it can expand and opens the doors for those crazy ideas. So this all goes back to Disney being very offended by a strike that happened before World War II. Now, his employees were some of the only ones in the, working in Hollywood who were not unionized. Right, but he, he had that family mindset that it wasn't just in his movies and his parks. He had it in his company, too. We're all family. We don't need a union. Right. I'm Uncle Walt. But then the company had to go public because they were falling on hard times, and everyone saw how much he was making compared to them. And it kind of made people go, Family, my ass, Walt. <laughs> Pops, can I borrow some money? Exactly. So on May 29th of 1941, Art Babbitt, an animator, was fired because he joined a union. And half of the animators walked out that day. And the strike lasted about five weeks. But Stephen Cavalier reported, Disney felt like his generals, his apostles, his brothers had betrayed him. Those strikes and the highbrow critics scorned for Fantasia, which was his passion project and did not get nearly the reputation that we think it has now oh no <laughs> it bombed yeah it killed off a part of him and tempered his passion for films so naturally when mccarthy was looking to round up some communist and disney had a grudge and an axe to grind it's like i might know a few and therefore went before congress and testified as follows and six years later in the past I had some people that I definitely feel were communist. He explains that the strike happened, and he said smear campaigns by commie periodicals and all the commie groups followed. One animator he named as an artist in my plant had been the real brains of the whole strike. I looked into his record, and I found that he had no religion. And then a congressman asked him about two other animators 
who'd been leaders of the strike, and he says, in my opinion, they are communist. No one has any way of proving those things. And And that's it. (laughs) That's it. That is what took Hollywood by storm in the 50s. No one had a way of proving those things. The Hollywood studios issued a joint statement in which they said that while, quote, nothing subversive or un-American has ever appeared on the screen, the industry leaders deplore the the action of the 10 Hollywood men, 10 men that had refused to cooperate with the HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, and henceforth the studio wouldn't, quote, knowingly employ a communist and would invite the Hollywood talent guilds to work with us to eliminate any subversives. You do have to realize that this time the Soviets were testing atomic bombs, so anti-communist hysteria quickened, spread, loyalty boards were set up in every federal department, and thousands of U.S. government employees were fired or forced out. And so this takes us to our last story. One of a man named William Gropper. He was a painter, an illustrator, cartoonist, and in the Great Depression and the World War II, he worked for the government. He offered his services to the U.S. Treasury Department and the White House's Office of War Information, and even received a citation and recognition of fine assistance, and a personal thanks from FDR for giving pictorial farm to the specific war information objectives through propaganda posters and paintings. Now, in 1945, he completed a map, and it was called William Gropper's America, It's Folklore. And it's this wonderful map of the United States and in various locations around the map you can see these depictions of these tall tale folk heroes you know ranging from Paul Bunyan to Storm Along to Kemp Morgan etc. Sissy. The sissy's sissy's on on the map. That's actually where we got him from. Yes the sissy is on the map. And it also includes some literary figures. Like Rip Van Winkle's on there, Huck Finn. Yeah, and and some like real people that had kind of become legends, like Jean Lafitte. So he completed this in 1945 and sold prints along with a 16-page pamphlet that was sold via mail order. Just The pamphlet just included some of the tall tales. Now, between 1946 and 1953, the State Department's Overseas Library Program collected and distributed some 1,744 copies of this map. The purchase was part of the post-war effort to disseminate, quote, facts and solidly documented explanations of the United Uh, States. (laughs) See tall tales. Yes. It was wildly popular overseas and at home. Kids loved it. It was in all the libraries. Then, in 1953... Mr. Roy Cohn steps in. Where's my Roy Cohn? He and his buddy, Joseph McCarthy, were touring State Department libraries around the world in their crusade against the Red Scare. And they fingered William Gropper as a commie, supporter, and sympathizer. He was subpoenaed, and he testified. And Mr. Cohn asked him, Are you the William Gropper who has prepared various maps? I don't understand the question. Prepared various maps... Did you prepare a map entitled America, It's Folklore? Have you got it here? No, I I don't have the map here. Did you prepare a map entitled America, It's Folklore? I I painted a map on American folklore, yeah. So Groper was not known to be a commie, but he did have left leanings, and he started his career working for the newspapers, Rebel Worker, and the Daily Worker. Eh. 
which had socialist left leanings. Well, it's all the same to Roy Cohn. Exactly. And, but in the 1930s, he worked through the WPA, painted many murals, including construction of a dam in the U.S. Department of Interior building. Now, he later would say, I don't like labels. I'm interested in mankind. People create the landscape in my paintings. I fight wrongs. I fight in a creative sense. I'm not fighting myself. I have no emotional conflicts. All my stuff is myself, passionately myself. I'm involved with ideas and concepts. I'm not trying to indoctrinate. I'm trying to express my thoughts. But you know who did love labels? Joseph McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy. So he was on McCarthy's list for more of his socialist background than anything. And when Gropper testified, he just pleaded the fifth. Oh, and you know what that is. That's like saying, did it, did it, did it. So he became one of the first blacklisted artists. The State Department sh- destroyed all of its copies. Of the map of America. Yes. Oh, my God. And McCarthy and Cohn decreed him a communist sympathizer. And thus, this map, America, its folklore, was un-American. Fuck you. <laughs> I hate it so much. It just shows just the insanity. Absurdity. Absurdity. It's absurd. It's absurd. But of course, this didn't stop the production of similar maps. One of the more famous ones you'll still see around is in 1960, Folklore and Legends of Our Country by Frank Soltz was produced. And its official title, if you were to buy it and look at it, it would say Roadmap of the United States. Special map of folklore and legends of our country with a guide to the treasuries of Americana. Plus, a trip planning roadmap of the United States. And now these little Americana maps were available at your local Esso station. So maybe while you and your family were loaded up in the car on your great American road trip, maybe to go to Knott's Farm or see a Paul Bunyan statue or head to Colonial Williamsburg and see real America. Maybe while your dad's filling up gas, you can beg him for a quarter, pick up this map, and learn a little bit about these Americana treasures. And you know what? None of those maps that were produced by any two different people are the same. They're not. Because we all value different things. And I think the truth of it is that if you become too focused on your vision of America, you can lose sight of the real thing. And so it behooves us all to investigate people like Paul Bunyan, who are a little bit fact, a little bit fiction, and a lot of hard work to keep alive. Because the real America is in their stories. And they're not just stories. They are not just stories. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.